0: The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the Forgotten TV studio 30 years later. To obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Joshua Driscoll. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can support the podcast. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. Ever since, Russian psychic researcher Alexander N. Aksakov coined the term telekinesis in 1890, a compound of Greek words Tella for distance, and kinesis for motion, the concept has fascinated those interested in unusual phenomena. Loosely defined as the mental ability to move physical objects with no evident energy or detectable force, the concept was by no means new at the time. In the ancient Sanskrit epic Mahabharata, Shakuni, interestingly the prince of the kingdom of Gandhara, manipulated the outcome of a crucial game of dice in his favor, displaying what is thought to be the first depiction of telekinesis in fiction, some 2,400 years ago. The wizard Merlin from Arthurian legend was known for many feats of telekinetic magic, including transporting Stonehenge across the Irish Sea from Ireland to England stage magicians of the late 19th century began integrating various types of levitation or floating objects into their performances. While historic figures such as Saint Joseph of Cupertino of the 17th century was said to have levitated before large crowds, these acts were interpreted by believers as religious miracles and not the result of claimed mental or magical powers. In the modern era, English stage magician J. N. Maskelyne is said to have introduced levitation into his act in 1873, where he would apparently float his wife into the air on stage. Many of his illusions are still performed. While magicians like Maskelyne and Harry Houdini dispelled the notion that they had any supernatural powers. As the spiritualist movement increased in popularity in the UK and the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, mediums began claiming the actual abilities of levitating or materializing objects, clairvoyance and communication with the dead. J.N. Maskelyne even founded the Occult Committee to investigate claims to supernatural power and to expose fraud, an activity you may be aware that Houdini was also known for. The study of alleged psychic phenomena, later called ESP or extrasensory perception, came to be called parapsychology, and the term psychokinesis was coined in 1914, said to specifically refer to the mental influence of physical systems and objects, without the use of any physical energy while telekinesis was the simple movement or levitation of objects by mental force. A distinction without much of a difference to people not versed in this field of interest. Although it is considered a fringe field of study and physicists have revealed no possible mechanism or force to account for telekinesis to actually work This didn't stop it from proliferating in popular media in the 20th century, causing these powers to be associated more with science and fantasy fiction than with spiritualism or parapsychology. In the mid-20th century, as early as 1949, telekinesis began showing up in stories in pulp magazines, such as Startling Stories and Astounding Science Fiction. C.L. Harness Theodore Sturgeon, Jay Kingston, and others began to use the term telekineticist in their stories. Jack Vance's novella, *Telek* depicted a future with humanity divided into two groups, normal humans and telex, those with the ability of telekinesis. The 1961 episodes of The Twilight Zone, The Prime Mover, and It's a Good Life, both depicted characters with telekinetic powers. Helmsman Gary Mitchell and Dr. Elizabeth Daner both developed telekinesis and other ESP powers when the Enterprise went where no man has gone before in 1966 on Star Trek. Captain Kirk and crew subsequently encountered several creatures and beings with this ability during their voyages and at one point even have to artificially manifest this power to get out of a sticky situation. In comics, Gene Grey and Professor X both displayed telekinetic power as part of Marvel's X-Men beginning in 1963, and X-Men popularity continued through the following decades. There was Tia and Tony in 1975's Escape to Witch Mountain. Who can forget the telekinetic revenge on her classmates in the 1976 film Carrie? Jonah and crew encountered a group of young people who had developed telepathy and telekinesis in a 1976 episode of Arc 2. And Wonder Woman had to deal with Ishida, the man who could move the world, in 1977. Zunar J5-9-Doric-47, otherwise known as Jake, had this power aided by a space caller in 1978's The Cat from Outer Space. I'm serious. In 1980, Yoda taught Luke the ways of the Force in The Empire Strikes Back, which seemed to include telekinetic abilities. More comedic uses for this power were found in 1981. First, Ralph discovers the telekinesis powers of the suit in a November episode of The Greatest American Hero white paper white paper. Then in December, Max Fieldler comes into contact with nuclear waste and gains this power in modern problems. Bennu on the phoenix possessed this as one of his ancient alien powers. So did our small benevolent alien visitor in 1982's E.T. And that same summer, when a lab accident gave Barney Springboro telekinetic powers. He engaged in some randy teenage behavior in Zapped. Having lived through this telekinetic zeitgeist, my junior high friends and I were primed and ready when NBC began promoting a new series for the fall of 1982 featuring an average teenager that was leading the secret life of a superhero. We all wanted to know just what were The Powers of Matthew Starr?
1: Friday, he's Matthew Starr, a teenage superhunk leading the secret life of a superhero. Teen Idol, Peter Barton stars in the first new hit of the season, The Powers of Matthew Starr.
0: If I had been a reader of the entertainment section of the newspaper, I would have known this series had a long and tragic backstory. Originally intended for the fall season of 1981, the show experienced over a year of delays, prior to its fall 1982 debut. But at 14, my friends and I simply tuned in at 8, 7 central to watch the show to start off our Friday nights, before being faced with the nearly impossible choice between staying on NBC for Knight Rider or switching to ABC to catch Ralph, Bill, and Pam on what would be the final season of The Greatest American Hero. Although I was a watcher of this series during its original run, and have vague memories of watching some episodes on the Sci-Fi Channel in the late 90s, the preparation for this podcast was my first time watching all the episodes seen in the order they originally aired in 1982 and 83, using the DVD provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Per the usual format, we'll briefly look at each episode, stopping at interesting production notes or tidbits related to specific episodes before delving behind the scenes of show creation and production. Episode 1, Jackal, airing September 17, 1982. Teenage Matthew Starr expresses angst to his guardian Walter Shepard over attending yet another new school in the city of Crestridge, California where Shep will be the new science teacher and Matthew a new student. Matthew meets Pam, a fellow student whom he takes a liking to. But Matthew is no ordinary teenager. As it is revealed, he not only has the power of telekinesis and telepathy, but that he is an alien prince named Ehawk from the planet Quadris. And both he and Shep, who is his protector, Deheye, are being pursued by alien robot assassins, as well as a general from the Air Force. Tired of running, Matthew chooses to stay and fight. Matthew Starr himself was played by 25-year-old, relatively unknown, Peter Barton, a dark, feathered hair teen hunk type, as the promos would emphasize. Lou Gossett Jr., by then gaining recognition and respect for his role in 1982's An Officer and a Gentleman, for which he would earn an Oscar nomination and win during the series' run, was Guardian Walter Shepard, informally called Shep by Matthew. And the third series regular was 21 year old Amy Steele as girlfriend Pam. Although she had had bit parts on television, she was primarily known for her role in Friday the 13th, Part 2, that released the summer of 1981. Guest stars Judson Scott as Float, the alien in pursuit of Matthew, Malo McCaslin as the robot assassin he sends after Matthew, She was a voice actress on Filmation Cartoons at the time, and later married Willie Ames, and co-starred in his Bible Man series. John Crawford was General Tucker, Chip Fry as Bob Alexander, classmate of Matthew, and Michael Fairman as Mr. Heller, school administrator. Recurring characters we'll see across several episodes. And if you pay attention, you'll notice Susan Rutan as the school bus driver. This was one of her first acting credits, and she is likely best known for her role as Arnie Becker's secretary, Roxanne Millman, on Ellie Law. This was the first episode that aired and served as the pilot for the series. Even though going by the production number, it was the fifth one filmed, confirmed by Barton himself in later interviews. As we'll see, there was a previous pilot, completely different in tone and approach, filmed in early 1981 that was rejected by the network and unaired at this point. It's an involved backstory, which we'll get into in the the behind-the-scenes segment. I do have to note we get the obligatory superhero saves the school bus scene, something we saw in 1978's Superman the Movie.
1: Okay, kids, it's all right now. Hey, it's Superman.
0: As well as in 2013's Man of Steel. This same scene appeared in the original pilot, and the stunt sequences were recycled. This episode, written by Robert Earle and Alan Balter, who also received developed-by credits for the series, has a cold open with no series theme or opening segment. The opening credits roll over the initial scene, as is done with a TV movie. Episode music was provided by Mike Post and Pete Carpenter, which includes a very generic 80s-style adventure show theme over the closing credits that did not get used for the remainder of the series. The primary powers of Matthew Starr were telekinesis and telepathy, powers only held by the royal family of Quadrus. Interestingly, Matthew generally does not use his telepathy to read the minds of humans, a departure from the original concept presented in the first pilot. Matthew only uses his telepathy to mentally talk to Shep and locate him in times of danger. This constituted Matthew's power set during the first dozen episodes. The planet Quadrus is revealed by Shep to be known on Earth as Tau Ceti IV, which is a very interesting choice. Tau Ceti is a real star in the constellation Cetus, identified in 1603 in Johann Bayer's Uranometria star catalog. It is accurately mentioned in the episode and subsequent series opening as being 12 light years from Earth, and is a little smaller and cooler than our Sun. The use of the designation Tau Ceti IV would signify the fourth planet in the star system, using the planetary numbering convention common to popular science fiction, such as Star Trek. In Star Trek continuity, Tau Ceti is an inhabited system and shows up quite a bit on star charts used on the various series. Trek fans might recognize that the ship Kobayashi Maru of the infamous no-win training scenario, first mentioned in Star Trek II, was registered on Tau Ceti IV. Also, note the use of guest star Judson Scott, who was filming Star Trek II over on Paramount Stage 9 at the time Jackal began filming. Scott had also been Bennu in the short-lived The Phoenix earlier that same year, a character that also had the powers of telekinesis and telepathy. Tau Ceti IV is also the name of a film project that seems to have been in development hell for the last three years. Uma Thurman is slated to star, and John McTiernan is attached to direct. Among other films, McTiernan is well known for directing 1988's Die Hard, which was written by Matthew Star creator Stephen D'Souza. The real exoplanet naming convention adopted by the International Astronomical Union involves taking the name of its parent star and adding a lowercase letter, So, Earth would be Sol D, for example. And yes, evidence suggests that there is indeed at least four exoplanets in the Tau Ceti system, discovered in 2012. Tau Ceti E orbits its star at a distance of 0.552 AU, corresponding to somewhere between the orbits of Venus and Mercury in our solar system, and has an orbital period of 168 days. If Tau Ceti-E possesses an Earth-like atmosphere, the surface temperature would be a rather warm 68C, or 154 degrees Fahrenheit. In a final production note, a leftover Fembot prop head from the Bionic Woman was used for the reveal of one of the alien assassins being an artificial life form. As we'll explore, the executive producer of the first dozen episodes of Matthew Starr was Harve Bennett. Who was the EP on both The Six Million Dollar Man The Bionic Woman As well as Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan Episode 2 Accused
1: Tonight on The Powers of Matthew Starr It's gotta be him The elusive mystery man Hey don't I know you (laughs) Uh, What's going on? I'll see you later Everything's fine can the conversation and lock him up. He murdered my partner. But I can't have you go running around the city hunting for killers. Discourage him from any further detective work.
0: We now get a proper opening theme and segment, giving viewers needed exposition to both explain the premise and set the tone for the type of show they were in for.
1: Quadris. 12 light years across the galaxy from Earth. It was home for us until an intergalactic armada conquered it. I fought by the royal family's side, but in vain. Even their remarkable powers weren't enough. The Crown Prince and I escaped to the nearest planet on which we could survive and further his powers in order to someday return to free his people. Here on Earth, the Prince is known as Matthew Starr. He's a typical American teenager. He has friends, people who love him, and me his guardian. I'm the only one who knows how special he is. Life for us is a series of joys and dangers for enemy assassins constantly come to destroy us. Alone, we must survive.
0: A criminal look-alike spells trouble for Shep as he is falsely identified for killing a police officer during a jewel-fencing deal in the back office of a nightclub. Shep has to face charges while Matthew tries to figure out how to clear his name, and in true 80s fashion, joining a rock band is somehow involved. This one was penned by Gregory S. Dinalo, who we've come across before on... The Amazing Spider-Man, and Beyond Westworld. He also wrote several episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man and Knight Rider. Dick Durock of Swamp Thing shows up as one of the heavies. Here, Matthew and Pam's relationship seems to have jumped straight to the I Love You stage, while we've seen almost no development of any relationship between them. This was a result of episodes being shown out of production order, with six series episodes filmed prior to this one. So if things between Matthew and Pam seem to progress quickly, then later revert to an earlier state, this is why. Matthew gets a beater GMC van, which he drives around for the rest of the series. Shep also brings up the concept that the criminal Julian was likely his earth double, and that Matthew may have one as well. Although this was pretty much a throwaway line and not dwelt on, even though this development could have significant implications for the continuity of the show. There's also a very interesting comment made by Shep about Matthew's father being advanced enough to be able to use his telekinesis in total darkness, to where visual contact with the object being moved wasn't necessary. Shep then encourages Matthew to retrieve an encyclopedia volume from the bookshelf, Blindfolded. This expands on the scenes from Jackal, where Float uses a series of flares at night to blind Matthew to interrupt his powers. This harks back to the rules for telekinesis that were presented in writer Alan Balter's 1977 TV movie, The Man with the Power, that we'll revisit later. Matthew's telekinesis also gets a new sound effect here that will be used until the format retooling in 11 episodes. Episode 3, Daredevil.
1: Tonight, on The Powers of Matthew Star. What I picked up from Burj, I can start his head stunt man tomorrow. That sounds great. Yeah. You just wait. I'm going to be the best. Wait, do you see the stunt I've created for him? Yeah. Uh. Yes, but I don't think it's worth risking Pete's life. And up we go!
0: The filming of a horror movie brings Pete, an old friend of Matthew's, to Crestridge High. But when Pete is promoted from grip to stuntman, his reckless showboating means Matthew gets to practice using his powers over and over to save his neck especially when the kooky director comes up with a dangerous stunt not in the script. Guest stars Bill Daly as the movie director. Daly was best known for his roles on I Dream of Jeannie and The Bob Newhart Show. Paul Regina was Matthew's friend, Pete. This episode aired October 1, 1982, and NBC's full Friday night lineup finally debuted that night with new series, Knight Rider, and Remington Steele, following Matthew Starr. Pam begins to express skepticism at the backstory of Matthew and Shep, something we'll see repeatedly throughout the first half of the series. We first see Matthew participating in football, where Shep is now an assistant athletic coach, as established in the pilot. The episode premise is sort of an inside joke on two levels. First, considering both Barton and Steele's very recent film roles in horror films, Hell Night and Friday the 13th Part 2, respectively. Also, the episode plot point of Crestridge High being used as a filming location was sort of meta, considering the filming location for the series itself was a high school, which we'll cover in the next segment. When Matthew gets recruited to be the boom operator, the director keeps having to tell him to hold it higher, out of frame. Ironic considering how many times the boom mic is clearly visible on Matthew Star episodes, including when it happens just 15 minutes later. This episode was written by Jeffrey Scott, and he's credited as a consultant for two other episodes. When I asked, Scott told me he essentially has no specific recollection of his work on this series from some 40 years ago, as it blended into so much other writing he did then and since. Scott was a very prolific Emmy Award-winning writer of Saturday Morning TV, pinning over 70 episodes of the various incarnations of The Super Friends, as well as Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Pac-Man, The Littles, Muppet Babies, and the list goes on. His work has been praised by Stan Lee, Jim Henson, and others. Episode 4, Genius
1: I tried to stop that lawnmower, and I couldn't. Well, what about now? Tonight, on The Powers of Matthew Starr. We are gonna have to get to Monica's formula and render it harmless. Could be big bucks. Big bucks. Everything painted with solar prime will be a heat-sensitive time bomb.
0: When Monica, a brainy classmate of Matthew's, invents a paint that keeps surfaces cooler under heat and warmer in cold conditions, he finds that it smells odd and interferes with his powers. When Matthew and Shep investigate further, they find the paint is not only toxic to Quadrions but explosive at higher temperatures, with a heat wave in the forecast. All the attention paid to Monica and her paint comes between Matthew and Pam. Guest stars Margaret Fitzgerald in her first acting credit as Monica. She appeared in a handful of minor TV and film roles and evidently has retired from acting. Written by our friend Tom Green, who is also a creative consultant for the series. You might recall Green was a writer and producer on Tales of the Gold Monkey, Knight Rider, and Magnum P.I., The episode bears some similarities to his 1977 Six Million Dollar Man episode called Danny's Inferno. Wow.
1: Danny, sounds like you've accidentally invented a thermochemical energy source. A scientific wonder becomes a nightmare. With enough explosives to turn the city into a pancake. A power that could mark the beginning of the end for the Six Million Dollar Man.
0: Here we see Matthew using powers to control a Zaxxon arcade game, something recycled from the D'Souza pilot. Zaxxon was a 1981 spaceship shooter arcade game from Sega, unique due to the fact that it utilized isometric-axonometric projection, from which its name is derived. The isometric projection effect simulates three dimensions from a third-person viewpoint. It was reportedly the first arcade game to be advertised on television with a commercial produced by Paramount for $150,000. So it's little surprise to see its placement here. Episode 5, Prediction.
1: Tonight on The Powers of Matthew Starr. There you go again, telling me I'm crazy. Look, you hit your head, it made you psychic, not crazy. Why are you doing this to me? My father is going to be killed. Stay away from her. You got that, punk? Try a little harder. See your father. I can't do it.
0: At a drag race after Matthew saves friends Bob and Becky from a crash, Becky repeatedly has a premonition, which Matthew can't help but also see via telepathy. When she continues having them, Matthew's interest in Becky is misinterpreted by everyone, including Bob, Pam, and Becky's father. Drag racing and sock hops seem more like the 1950s than 1982, in this episode penned by Richard Christian Matheson and Tom Shalazi, who were also writers on The Incredible Hulk and The A-Team, as well as one of the unfilmed episodes of The Phoenix. They contributed two additional Matthew Star episodes. I'll note this is the only episode in the regular series run where Matthew uses telepathy with a human, and it was involuntary, much like we'll see in episode 11, although in a later episode he detects the thoughts of other quadrians. But it was clear something got lost in translation when the marketing team at NBC went to promote this episode in this Danny Dark voice teaser.
1: He's got x-ray vision. I feel like a peeping tongue. And it's driving him crazy. Is this a come on or what? They can't resist the powers of Matthew Starr, Friday.
0: Episode 6, The Italian Caper.
1: Tonight on The Powers of Matthew Starr.
0: Our very own Matthew Starr is one of three finalists in the International Student Science Triennale in Italy.
1: The device will be much more valuable to you with the minds who created and developed it. A most impressive package. You mean you're not going to help Tucker? Frankly, they probably killed him already.
0: When Shep turns down General Tucker to help with an overseas matter involving terrorists he arranges a pretext for Matthew to compete in an international science fair, ensuring their reluctant cooperation. Matthew is tasked with recovering an experimental vehicle, but Tucker gets kidnapped. Meanwhile, with Matthew gone, Pam is stuck with organizing a school dance. Guest stars Michael Constantine, Robert Davi, Michael Tucci, and John Crawford returns as General Tucker. Crawford collected well over 200 credits over the course of his 45-year career. He appeared on numerous shows of TV's golden age, including The Lone Ranger, Adventures of Superman, The Twilight Zone, The Fugitive, and Star Trek. He shows up on all four Irwin Allen TV series, as well as The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. This episode was written by James M. Miller, known for his TV movies The People and The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. Matthew's mothball science fair experiment from Genius gets referred to, and Pam is again suspicious that such an underwhelming science project would be selected to represent the school internationally. Episode 7, Winning
1: Tonight on The Powers of Matthew Star. You wouldn't have a couple of pointers for me or anything, would you?
0: Well, Tony, uh,
1: if you wouldn't mind my saying, I can tell an advance to you can throw a pass. Why do I get the feeling that you really don't like that young man? But all that matters is when we're on that field. And I'm gonna try to beat you out. Oh, yeah? You flunked Garcia so that kid of yours could play. I'm gonna prove it. You're not gonna get away with this.
0: No longer content with being the ball boy, Matthew uses his powers to give him an unfair advantage during a football tryout and makes the team. However, when Shep has to sideline the star player for failing a science test, this puts Matthew in the uncomfortable position of being starting quarterback by default. Meanwhile, Pam takes it upon herself to assist Matthew's rival with his academics guest stars Barry Van Dyke as the quick-tempered coach Curtis. The son of actor Dick Van Dyke started his career at age 10 on The Dick Van Dyke Show. He played Lieutenant Dylan on Galactica 1980 and later had regular roles on Airwolf and acted alongside his father several times, including on the 2001 series Diagnosis Murder. This early episode is reminiscent of the Smallville segment of Superman the Movie, where Clark was stuck being equipment manager for the high school football team, while knowing that every time he got the football, he could make a touchdown. Every time. We even get a Matthew uses his powers when cleaning up after the players, much like the Superman film. Not being a big sports guy, I didn't get much out of this by-the-numbers Gregory Denalo's script the second regular episode produced. But this was exactly the type of storyline NBC was looking for, which we'll discover when we discuss the show origins. Episode 8, Endurance.
1: There's a Matthew Star. Well,
0: <laughs> About eight months ago, two men escaped from the facility for the Criminally Insane about ten miles from here. Shep, it's a bullet hole, Matthew.
1: help kill you too.
0: Shep, where are you? Shep and Coach Curtis lead a group of students in a survival hike and camping trip in the nearby mountains. They not only have to dodge mountain lions, but escaped mental patients harassing them, and even the park ranger is not who he seems to be. Guest is Barry Van Dyke returning as the now mellow Coach Curtis. John Dennis Johnston as mental patient Jackie, and Spencer Milligan as the park ranger. You might remember him as Rick Marshall on Land of the Lost. Krista Erickson played one of the students. She is best known for her role of Diane Alder on Hello Larry. Episode written by Ruel Fishman, a writer for Salvish One and Time Tracks. A production note here. Although the last two episodes with Coach Curtis aired back-to-back on two consecutive weeks, Winning was the second one filmed back in October 1981, and Endurance was one of the final four of the original dozen produced episodes filmed in late April 1982. Producers may have had Coach Curtis in mind as an ongoing recurring character in future episodes, but as we'll see, a series direction change eliminated this possibility. Episode 9 The Triangle. Tonight, i the powers of Matthew Starr.
1: Where are you going? I did to go find my uncle Ron. His plane went off radar 200 miles south of NASA. That's a bad spot.
0: Matt, it's his.
1: Honey, mean, from the looks of this, I wouldn't exactly expect him to be doing push ups. Whatever you find, we share. Don't move, buddy boy. Don't even change an opinion.
0: When Pam's uncle crashes his plane on an island in the Bermuda Triangle, Shep enlists the aid of General Tucker, while Matthew accompanies Pam to Miami to charter a plane to look for him, with Shep not far behind. Landing on an island, Matthew encounters a Quadrian couple who possess the Kashat, an important symbolic relic of their people. Marooned on the island, the couple were messengers that were to have arrived a year ago and have been holding on to life long enough to pass the Kashat to its rightful heir, Matthew. With the information that his father has been killed, Matthew removes the crystal from the heart of the Kashat and recites the Creed of Kings, becoming coronated as King of Quadras. Guest stars Robert Sampson as Pam's father, known for roles on Bridget Loves Bernie, Police Story, and Falcon Crest, Rudy Solari as a sketchy hired pilot, and longtime character actors Jeff Corey and Julie Newmar were Vol and Neon, a pair of quadrians. We also see old lady character actress Mary Earle, probably best known as Maud Gormley, on The Waltons and John Crawford makes his final appearance as General Tucker. Okay, things finally get interesting in this episode directed by none other than Leonard Nimoy. Quite a bit of information is related that goes to the mythology of the series, provided to us by writers Richard Christian Matheson and Tom Shalazi. First, we learn of the existence of the Kashat, which is a relic that may hold both political and religious significance to the quadrians, as Shep likens it to the cross. Matthew considers his relationship with Pam serious enough that he gives her a necklace with a pendant image of the Kashat, which she recognizes later on the island. The mystery of Matthew's background deepens for her and she looks forward to hearing the eventual explanation for all the odd things about him that don't add up. While Matthew is not quite ready to return to Quadris, he asks Shep if Earth people can live there, hinting that he may ask Pam to join him there when the time arrives. Episode 10, Mother.
1: Tonight, on The Powers of Matthew Starr. You all right?
0: And next time I'll take your advice.
1: Take it. It is the ring meant for the hand of the leader, Matthew. That ring that she gave you belonged to your mother. Who are you? You warned me with telepathy. Now only the royal family has such powers.
0: Get run right home At a carnival, Matthew has his fortune told by an old woman at Pam's encouragement, who seems to almost know him and gives him a ring as a gift. Shep recognizes the ring as having belonged to Matthew's mother, and subsequently discovers the fortune-teller is Nadra, E. Hawk's mother. But the reunion will have to wait, because Armada assassins are nearby and after the royals. Guest stars Tricia O'Neill as Queen Nadra. You might remember her as Captain Rachel Garrett of the Enterprise C., in Yesterday's Enterprise, a third-season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. The prolific Don Stroud was alien assassin Garn. Stroud is known for roles on Mrs. Columbo, the new Mike Hammer, and the 1989 revival of Dragnet. It's back-to-back mythology episodes here, as Matthew gets a short-lived reunion with his mother, but due to a contrived reason, she has to leave and go live far away preserving the status quo. Pam's parents are spoken of positively by Shep as good people, a real departure from the original D'Souza pilot, as we'll see. Matthew's powers seem to have developed into a spidey sense if Shep or his mother is in danger nearby. And in yet another Star Trek connection, this episode was written by Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov on the original series and first seven films. Caney wrote a few episodes for 70s television, including Star Trek The Animated Series, Land of the Lost, What Really Happened to the Class of 65, and Family. Episode 11, Experiments.
1: Tonight, on The Powers of Matthew Starr. I told you your abilities would keep on growing. Picking up thoughts from other species was inevitable. That dolphin needs help, and I'm not going to ignore it, Shep. Now, perhaps you can tell me what you're doing here in the middle of the night.
0: During a class visit to Marine Park, a dolphin named Susie mentally cries out to Matthew for help. With Matthew continuing to hear Susie's cries, even at home, he defies Shep to investigate further. Initially incredulous, Shep can't ignore the evidence that the park is conducting illegal drug testing on dolphins, and he and Matthew must take action. Guest stars John Riley, Amanda McBroom, and Clyde Kusatsu, who play the weekly heavies. Kusatsu is a very prolific character actor with over 300 credits. You might remember the Hawaiian actor from Kung Fu, Bring Him Back Alive, or Island Sun. This Matheson-Chalazi episode, one of the first three filmed before the pilot, was filmed at Marineland of the Pacific on the Palos Verdes Peninsula in L.A. County. Marineland opened in 1954 and was the world's largest oceanarium. Numerous TV shows and films shot there over the years during its operation, including Sea Hunt. The Six Million Dollar Man, Emergency, 1977's Tentacles, Wonder Woman, The Lost Boys, and Simon & Simon. The park fell into some disrepair over the years, and it closed in 1987. Even after its closure, it continued to be popular as a filming location for feature films, as sets could now be constructed with no park patrons to work around. The Pirates of the Caribbean films, Pearl Harbor, The Aviator, and other films have shot there. Episode 12, Fugitives. Wait for
1: me! Tonight, on The Powers of Matthew Starr. Try to lose him. You're in a hospital. Shep, we gotta get you out of here. Must get out of here. That's impossible. The man shouldn't even be alive.
0: I feel like a gangster's girlfriend. Pam, I'll make it
1: up to you, I promise. The hypo's not working. Let's get him to OR, stat. Hold it right there, son.
0: Pam, working as a candy striper, is assisting a research doctor at the local hospital. When Matthew brings her lunch, she talks him into getting scanned by a new hospital imaging machine. Shep successfully sneaks into the hospital and erases the data, which would expose Matthew's alien organs. But while hiding, his arm gets accidentally burned by chemicals. When he becomes deathly ill as a result, Shep is rushed to the hospital, which threatens to expose the pair. Guest stars Sam Wiseman as the far too curious Dr. Stewart, and Danny Goldman as Dr. Lindsay. You may not recognize his name, but he would often play nerdy doctor types, and he was the voice of Brainy Smurf for nearly 40 years until his death in 2020. If things seem a little stilted and awkward between all our characters in this episode, Pam's comment that Matthew has only been in Crestridge for five weeks gives us a hint as to why. Written by the venerable Judy Burns, this was the first regular series episode filmed in mid-October, 1981. Judy Burns was a story consultant on the first half of the series and writer for television for many popular shows of the era. T.J. Hooker, Vegas, The Six Million Dollar Man, as well as the Wonder Woman episode, The Man Who Could Move the World, which also dealt with telekinesis. She got her start on Star Trek, writing the classic episode, The Tholian Web. Pam volunteering as a candy striper seems a little dated now. The term used to indicate a hospital volunteer, almost always a high school or college-age young lady, arose in the 1940s, and it was applied to hospital volunteers that wore red and white striped pinafores during their duties. Although the candy striper uniform was discarded in the mid-90s, medical volunteerism is still practiced by those seeking to learn more about medical professions or to satisfy college or university community service requirements. Airing on December 17th, this was the last new episode of 1982 as the show went into reruns, while NBC decided the fate of both this series as well as time-traveling show Voyagers, which likely shared much of the same audience. By December 22nd, it was announced they decided to give each show the back nine, ordering the remaining episodes that would constitute a full season, prompting both series to scramble back into production. But in the case of Matthew Starr, This would mean some changes.
1: How would you like to drive a car that talks, has a mind of its own, and goes faster than any car? I am the voice of Knight Industry 2000's microprocessor. This crime crasher is driven by Michael Knight, and it may be more than he bargained for. I don't believe this. So buckle up for action with the fastest show on television, Knight Rider.
0: Episode 13, Matthew Starr, DOA.
1: Next! Matthew Starr discovers a new power. He can take a trip out of his body, only this time, he almost leaves himself behind for
0: good. Would you like to see it again, Mr. Wymore? I could
1: see that a hundred times and still not believe it. Hi. They are gonna get rid of your body. I got news for you. I was gone when I got back.
0: After a five week break, we enter 1983 with the show returning January 21st with a completely new opening segment and new theme composed and performed by Johnny Harris. Gone is the cool sci-fi intro with the spaceships, and immediately we observe a new tone for the show, a new attitude with Matthew winking at the audience. All exposition regarding Matthew's alien origins and fugitive status is dumped, as is Amy Steele and any hint of high school life, as clips highlighting action and new powers, as well as new regular James Karen, are used. New viewers are thus given no background for Matthew and Shep, nor their relationship to each other, and things seem less serious overall. Matthew is on the basketball court and about to hit on a girl when his comm ring flashes, meaning Major Wymore is summoning him and Shep for a mission. Or is it now Walt? After demonstrating his new power of astral projection, Wymore gives them a mission going undercover at both a hospital and a crooked funeral home to investigate why two crime bosses have died mysteriously, yet their operations continue to function. Along the way, there are car chases, a building blows up, criminals get new faces, and Matthew goes on a date. Guest stars, Nicholas Pryor, Molly Cheek, and Pat Corley are the weekly heavies, and recognizable character actor James Caron comes on as new regular, playing Major Wymore. Karen had several memorable roles in television, a recurring role on 8 is Enough as Tom Bradford's boss, he played a KKK leader on a memorable 1981 episode of The Jeffersons, and the following year would be tycoon Nathan Lassiter, who killed the town of Walnut Grove in the final TV movie of Little House on the Prairie. James Caron died in 2018 at age 94. Although Gil Grant stays on as line producer, completely new writers are brought on, and Harve Bennett is out, and Bruce Lansbury is in as he takes over the show and attempts to jazz things up as executive producer with Scott Wynant as associate producer. A new theme, new sound effects, new powers, and new tone of storytelling are rolled out in this episode written by new head writer Bruce Shelley, who also worked on Wonder Woman, Eight is Enough, and Ships. Gone is any hint or mention of Girlfriend Pam, but General Tucker gets written out in dialogue, as having been transferred to Greenland, and new, no-nonsense Major Wymore runs things now. The new power of astral projection is introduced. As depicted on the show, Matthew can lie down and project another version of himself that can materialize elsewhere and walk through walls, since it's only a projection and not his physical form. His body is vulnerable when this happens, and he appears dead, He also has no other powers while in astral form, which is limited to two hours. The new powers were likely excuses to jazz up the show with new visual effects. When he goes astral, his body is enveloped with a blue glow, likewise when his astral form materializes. But Matthew's character is also changed. He now calls Shep, Walt. He's now more of a player, free to pursue new girls and have flirty interactions with guest stars. Also gone are mentions of Matthew's backstory and mythology, as the show is taken in a new direction, as stories will be directed away from Crestridge High and play as a more straightforward action-adventure, where Matthew and Walt will be given regular assignments. This episode actually gives us the final instance of the high school as a location, and final mention of Matt being a student and Walt a teacher. I have to say, I wasn't then and still aren't a fan of the changes. I even recall screaming, What? What? at the new opening segment back in 1983. Episode 14, Racer's Edge. Next, it's breakneck action on the motocross circuit as Matthew and Walt save a beautiful girl from abduction.
1: Wait, 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 wait! Cliff will do anything to stay on top, so don't mess with me. Yeah, well, he doesn't scare me. Well, he scares me. It's just for starters. Stay out of my way. We coming at you. And you're going to get something else coming at you. You got that? I'm starting to get this bill and we're in a lot of trouble. Now, Matthew! Now!
0: Matthew's recreational time with hottie of the week Terry has to wait as the Comrings summon him and Walt for another assignment. The pair are tasked with going undercover on the motocross circuit to protect Carolyn Ashley, the daughter of a State Department official, from potential kidnapping. Along the way, we get the requisite car chase, a cross-dressing villain, a CB-lingo spouting Walt, and Matthew macking on the weekly guest star. Guest actors Doran Clark as Carolyn Ashley, Don Gordon as the cross-dressing heavy and recognizable character actors Alex Colin and Joel Brooks also make appearances. Written by Luciano Comici, who wrote a few TV shows of this era, as well as the 1979 cult classic film, The Visitor. Because telekinesis, telepathy, and astral projection are not enough powers, Matthew gains the power of transmutation, or at least the illusion of it, in this episode. As applied here, this means the apparent conversion of one physical form into another. A plant becomes a television, a soccer ball becomes a telephone, and so on, just by pointing at it. He can also now emit a telekinetic burst of energy, which can disrupt matter, which comes in handy when he and Walter chained up inside an underground water tank. The episode itself plays like a run-of-the-mill Night Rider, The Fall Guy, or any other action-adventure show of the 1980s. Episode 15, Dead Man's Hand.
1: You ...and Walt go undercover in Las Vegas to bust an extortion racket on the powers of Matthew Starr. Drop it! Why didn't you tell beats about me? But you run on a car, and I want to cut in on it. Now I'm going to ask you one more time.
0: Matthew and Walt's nighttime TV drama is interrupted by Major Wymore on the com rings with another assignment. They're assigned to investigate a Vegas casino owner and national crime boss who has managed to blackmail all prior law enforcement into keeping quiet. Walt goes undercover as a card dealer while Matthew finds time to help an old stage magician rekindle his confidence. Guest stars Richard Hurd, who you might remember from everything, character actors Richard Cuss and Raymond St. Jock, and Arthur Taxier, who was Lieutenant Zymack, on Midnight Caller. In this episode, penned by new writer David Caron, Walt's sudden card-dealing skills, which seemed to suggest he had unknown powers of his own, are never explained, and Matthew can now sense sources of energy. Karen had recently returned from a trip to Las Vegas, which clearly influenced the plot and setting. One of his very first sold and filmed scripts had been for Buck Rogers in the 25th century for producer Bruce Lansbury, who brought him in to write for Matthew Starr. This episode spoofs the infamous Dallas Who Shot JR phenomenon from the fall of 1980 with the nighttime drama Waco. Matthew and Walt expressed great irritation at being called away from the reveal, which greatly mirrored real life two and a half years earlier. Dallas's infamous J.R. Ewing, played by Larry Hagman, had been shot by an unknown assailant in the cliffhanger ending that spring, and viewers had to wait all summer to find the answer in what was the biggest television event of 1980. An actor strike that summer meant viewers had to wait an extra six weeks to find out just who shot J.R. When the episode finally aired in November of 1980, life came to a standstill in much of the country in a TV ratings event only preceded by the 1967 finale of The Fugitive. Actress Denise Crosby will tell you what it was like to visit the hospital ER that night as she had cut her hand in a kitchen accident and sought medical care. Arriving to an abandoned ER, she found the staff huddled around a television watching Dallas and only attended to her after the episode reveal. And along with the rest of the world, Denise discovered JR's sister-in-law and mistress, Kristen Shepard, Played by her aunt Mary Crosby, was the culprit. Episode 16 36 hours. 36 hours to re entry. They'll burn up.
1: I'm going to see Parkland from 20,000 feet.
0: Are you going to fly? F4,
1: what's going on up there? You're all over the scope. Just got where I was. Start remembering where you are. You'll be grounded. Next, Matthew becomes an urban cowboy while Walt goes underground to save the space shuttle. Oh, time for the master to go to work.
0: Matthew and Walt are assigned to investigate and retrieve a mission control guidance module stolen from Parkland Space Center. They have 36 hours to find the thieves and recover the module before the space shuttle crashes. Walt goes undercover as an Air Force colonel while Matthew, as an itinerant urban cowboy, befriends a young lady reporter named Laura. Guest stars Penny Pizer as Laura, Scott Highlands as an Air Force colonel, and Joshua Bryant as the Weekly Heavy. It's the second episode in a row by writer David Karen, who went on to have a very prolific writing career with a lot of Saturday morning TV. On the fourth season of Star Trek The Next Generation, on 90s sci-fi shows Space Precinct and Tech War, as well as writing and producing Diagnosis Murder. Here, the sound effect for Matthew's telekinesis changes yet again, and Walt can now use the quadrian version of the Vulcan nerve pinch, which he calls digital tranquilization. The team are also clearly supposedly visiting Houston, Texas in this episode, which goes out of its way to never mention. They even visit a Gillies-like bar, complete with mechanical bull, and you heard the network teaser even call out Urban Cowboy, the 1980 John Travolta hit film that featured Gillies Club. If you pay close attention, you see the name of the bar Matthew and Laura walk into was The Broken Spoke, Gateway to the West, on signs and menus mocked up for the episode. An homage to the real Broken Spoke Bar in Austin, Texas, a favorite of writer David Caron. Walt also gets to brush up on his F-4 jet fighter piloting skills by learning how directly from the instruction manual. This foreshadows Gossett's role as Colonel Chappie Sinclair in the Iron Eagle film series starting in 1986. Episode 17, Quadrian Caper
1: Next, on the powers of Matthew Starr, Walt and Matthew become bank robbers. It's all part of a plan to help a friend until the plan gets complicated. Wow. A life of crime is exhausting. It's funny, but I don't feel that relaxed. You okay, partner? Almost done.
0: Oh, not yet, partner.
1: Walt! Walt, you all right? Walt!
0: In an unorthodox move, Major Wymore asks Walt and Matthews' help for a personal matter. His nephew works at a bank and has borrowed an expensive diamond necklace for a good cause and needs to put it back. But the security system has been changed. Meanwhile, the same bank is targeted by thieves, and good guys and bad guys collide on the same bank job. Guest stars Dennis Lipscomb and Laura Johnson as the Weekly Heavies, and Gary Imhoff as Wymore's nephew, Gary. Yes, it's a high story in this second episode by Executive Story Editor Bruce Shelley, and I just have to shake my head at how much the series has gone off the rails from its original concept. The weekly mission briefing has become a setting for forced jokes. And the characters now routinely engage in behavior that seems out of character with what was previously established. Episode 18, Brain Drain
1: There's more to falling in love than finding your heart's desire. I'm wondering if this Navy genius has the guts to show up. Just introduce your computer to Simon. Great conversation, great dinner. Then I guess it's time for dessert.
0: Matthew and Walt's card game has to wait because Wymore is flashing the com rings with a new assignment. A number of the top minds of the country have gone missing, and Wymore wants answers. It turns out a crooked, high-end computer dating service is involved that arranges defections of top minds for foreign powers. The pair go undercover together for a change. Walt this time is a Navy official, and Matthew, posing as a Naval computer genius is the bait. Guest stars John Vernon and Sharon Acker as the weekly heavies who run the dating agency, and the women that lure the targets were played by Anne-Marie Martin and Lynn Longos. Story by William McGeehan and Gil Grant. Teleplay by George McEldowie. Holy pseudonyms, Batman! Executive producer Bruce Lansbury used his William McGeehan pseudonym here, which he also used on Buck Rogers and two other Matthew Star episodes. And George McEldowie, misspelled on IMDb, was Bruce's twin brother Edgar George McEldowie Lansbury, known primarily for being an art director and producer for the stage and screen. A production note, When Walt and Matthew go undercover, a large computer prop is seen at an Air Force facility. This same prop was used in the Automan episode, Zippers. This was likely a prop rental, as it appears to be something that disassembles into six pieces for transport, as well as the fact that it shows up on both a Paramount and a Fox production. Episode 19, The Great Waldo Shepard.
1: I'm going to be on the wing, and he needs pointers? Walt! This isn't as bad as I thought it'd be! What are you doing now? I've lost control. I'll be counting each piece as it comes off the planes. Kill him. Next on the powers of Matthew Star, Walt and Matthew reach new heights, tracking down stolen government plans.
0: Matthew and Walt are just getting back from a ski weekend away with friends. When thieves steal the twin-engine prop plane they were just in, out from under them. Not only is the plane stolen, but their friend is a consultant for NATO. And in the back of the plane was a suitcase with blueprints to a new NATO fighter. They go undercover at an air show with Walt as pilot and Matthew as wing walker to retrieve them and end up uncovering a plane theft and arms dealing ring. Guests are Scott Marlowe and Christopher Gautman as the Weekly Heavies, with Gracie Harrison as the good guy ATF agent. Written by Bill Taub, who cranked out episodes for over 20 TV series of the 70s and 80s, and later became a staff writer on 1999's Relic Hunter, created by Matthew Starr's Gil Grant. The episode title is a take on the 1975 film The Great Waldo Pepper, with Robert Redford, a 1920s period film about the life of the fictional barnstorming pilot. Also, owners of the DVD will note that VEI misspelled Shepherd on the disc menu. Episode 20: Road Rebels.
1: Next, on the Powers of Matthew Star, Walt and Matthew play a deadly game of cups and robbers. You to talk to a cop like that, they'll get somebody killed one of these days. So, where did you send Walt? I can't tell you that. It would be very dangerous for both of you. It's a 50 pound skin diver's belt you have on. You'll hit bottom in no time. Brad, just let me explain. Just.
0: With Walt already on assignment, Wymore briefs Matthew on the concerns of the intelligence community over the theft of laser crystals, which would put advanced technology for sale to the highest bidder. Wymore believes the thieves are a group of young, illegal street racers that somehow receive inside information from the police. When Matthew shows up to street race with the group, who would show up to arrest them but Officer Shepard? Of course, while they work the case, Matthew meets the young lady of the week named Penny. Guest stars Don Knight, playing a convincing heavy in this one. We discussed him extensively in the podcast on The Immortal. John Grease appears as Brad, the head street racer. He was later Uncle Rico on 2004's Napoleon Dynamite. And Felicia Lansbury makes her acting debut as Penny. She's the daughter of producer Bruce Lansbury. She later appeared several times on Knott's Landing and Murder, She Wrote. Yes, this week it's an excuse to get our characters involved in drag racing. If this was done today, the episode title would probably be a play on The Fast and the Furious. The episode was penned by Mark Jones, a writer for 80 series The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, Riptide, The A-Team, and 11 episodes of Superboy. Episode 21, Swords and Quests.
1: You Star, a harmless game of Swords and Quests, traps Matthew in a maze of terror. Our first trial awaits us here in the Caverns of Chaos. Be on your guard. Matthew, what's wrong? Uh, Just a little out of breath. We gotta call the police. There's no time for that. One of the kids may die. (gasps) You dizzy again? (laughs) Try anything funny and you'll taste my steel. We're not afraid of you.
0: Matthew is off to play a costumed role-playing game with friends at nearby Kingston State. But unknown to him, he is sick with a quadrian virus, and his powers are waning. The gameplay is interrupted by a very real creep, dressed in black terrorizing the students with the end goal of stealing a formula from a biochem professor for organic plastic while Walt is also trying to find the students to give Matthew the cure in this Change of Pace episode written by Lee Sheldon. Guest stars Charlie Lang, Harry Rhodes, and former Bond girl Martine Beswick as the Weekly Heavies, and Michelle Tobin is Matthew's new friend, Mandy. Tobin was a series regular on 70s series The Fitzpatricks, Grandpa Goes to Washington, and California Fever. Yes, it was the era of Dungeons & Dragons, the TSR fantasy role-playing game, that rocketed to popularity in the early 1980s. 1983 was pretty much the height of D&D mania, and its popularity inspired quite a number of TV series and episodes. The prior year, Elliot, Michael, and friends played D&D in 1982's E.T., Characters in 1982's TV movie Mazes and Monsters with Tom Hanks played a knockoff version, which misled viewers regarding a real 1979 incident. I need to write an article on that sometime. There was the short-lived series Wizards and Warriors that went on the air in February 1983, featuring Jeff Conaway. The Wizards and Warlocks episode of The Greatest American Hero, scheduled for a February 1983 airing, but never aired until reruns, when the show was canceled and pulled from the schedule. And finally, the game itself got a Saturday morning cartoon. Dungeons and Dragons went on the air in the fall of 1983, which aired for three seasons. This episode, along with many of these dated popular depictions of role-playing games, perpetuate the misconception that players dress up and act out their characters in staged campaigns played at a specific location, something we would now call LARPing. However, D&D is a tabletop fantasy game, commonly played on a table, that takes place entirely in the player's imaginations. Writer Lee Sheldon is credited for several 70s and 80s shows, including Charlie's Angels, The Greatest American Hero, Snoops, two episodes of 1988's Probe, and A Star Trek The Next Generation. He's also a novelist, as well as a writer of video, board, and role-playing games, and has written 2 nonfiction books that integrate RPG storytelling into university classes. He is now a professor of practice in game writing in the Interactive Media and Game Development Program at the private Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And the director of this episode was none other than star Lou Gossett Jr. That was the last regular series episode. Sort of. When people tuned in the following week, they were treated to the original previously unaired pilot, which oddly was shown as the series' final episode two years after it was filmed. Episode 22, Star Night, airing April 15th, 1983. In the original airing, Peter Barton did this voiceover introducing the episode, followed by a hybrid of the original opening segment with the Quadris Origin voiceover by Walt, followed by the newer theme song. Tonight on The Powers of Matthew Star. you'll see the pilot episode which became
1: the basis for the series. In those days, I was David Star, and Walt Shepard hadn't even come into my life yet. At that time, I still hadn't discovered where I came from and the full extent of my powers.
0: Dave, just tell me what's wrong. I don't know who I am. He's there, and I'm gonna find him. 16-year-old David Starr is a freshman at Crestridge High. He lives with his guardian, Max, a middle-aged man who is also the handyman at the high school. And in many ways, they lead a fairly normal life, but neither of them is what they seem. While Max hides a high-tech robotic hand under a glove he always wears, as well as a computer setup in his bedroom that would rival the Batcave, David is plagued by dreams where he faces strange creatures in combat with exotic weapons and is beginning to manifest certain abilities. When their poorly maintained school bus loses its brakes on a hilly SoCal road, David instinctively sends a burst of telekinetic energy to the wheels to stop it before it lunges off a cliff. And when he has dinner with new girlfriend Pam, he begins to hear the obnoxious thoughts of her parents. When a prank meant to embarrass David results in fire later at the annual father-son banquet, David takes stock of his abilities and rescues a crowd of people, including Max and Pam. Unknown to Max and David, an FBI agent is investigating the pair to prove his pet theory of their origins. Max was played by 59-year-old veteran actor Gerald S. O'Laughlin, who had a 30-year career under his belt by this time. The ex-Marine began appearing on television in the early 1950s on those Playhouse-style series, and briefly had regular series roles on 1965's The Doctors and 1970's Men at Law, before being cast as Lieutenant Ed Riker on 1972's The Rookies. Following the airing of Star Night, he was next seen on ABC's Auto Man the following fall as Captain Boyd. Jack Knight and Cynthia Harris appear as Pam's racist parents, Priscilla Morrill as the homeroom teacher, and Dick Anthony Williams as FBI agent Daniels, who made a career out of playing police and federal agents. If you watch the credits, look for Amy Nicole, the girl in the video arcade who challenged David to a video game match. This was Amy D'Souza, the nearly eight-year-old daughter of pilot writer Stephen D'Souza. And William Conrad does an uncredited voiceover during the dream sequences. Let the
1: game begin.
0: Production Notes The stunt scenes with the school bus were reused for Jackal, while the scenes inside the bus were re-shot. In this version, David emits a blue energy from his body that goes through the bus to the rear wheels. In Jackal, a sound effect is used and no blue light is shown. Also, David controls a video game with his powers at the conclusion, a Space Invaders arcade game. We would see this concept reused in the episode, Genius. However, this pilot comes across as an unfinished product in more ways than one. For one, the sound mix was clearly unfinished. Most of the music comes from the left channel, a lot of the secondary dialogue from the right channel. There are gaps where sound effects and foley would have been added, calling attention to the obviously looped dialogue, such as here when the crowd tries to escape the fire.
1: Let me out of here! Open.
0: My guess is they stopped working on the audio mix when NBC decided the pilot would not be used, which we'll talk about. And I have to agree with NBC. Although I liked elements of this story, taken without the opening segment exposition, absolutely nothing about David's dreams or he and Max's origins are answered. And all we're left with are questions to be developed in future episodes. His abilities are never laid out for the viewer, although Pam's classroom presentation on psionics that mentioned telekinesis, telepathy, clairvoyance, and teleportation gives us an idea. But it's an unsatisfying big mystery, and as we'll see, the network wanted a different take for a pilot episode. The powers of Matthew Starr will return in a moment.
1: Want it all and even more Just watch us now We're NBC Just watch us now Just watch us fill your days and nights With laughter and with pure delight At all the funny things our funny people do Watch us as we pack the screen With action like you've never seen Drama and adventure that will startle you just watch us N-A-C- you love- Somewhere in the darkest reaches of the universe, a battle is about to begin. A battle between good and evil, between a warrior and a madman. A battle that will take you from the end of time to the beginning of creation. A battle between the awesome power of the Starship Enterprise and the Wrath of Khan. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, rated PG. Now showing at a theater near you. Where NBC. Just watch us
0: now. Behind the Scenes The Powers of Matthew Starr was a Daniel Wilson production in association with Paramount Television. Later episodes added Bruce Lansbury Productions Limited to the end credits, as we'll discuss. Although I find little to no biographical information on Daniel Wilson, he became known for producing afternoon content for all three networks, aired as ABC After School Specials, NBC Special Treat, and CBS Afternoon Playhouse. In 1980, he brought Here's Boomer to NBC, occupying an early Sunday night time slot opposite 60 Minutes on CBS. The origin of Matthew Starr is long and convoluted, and I've never encountered a show that suffered more setbacks, and even tragedy, throughout its production history. In addition, title and story format changes led to months of confused reporting surrounding the series. It was a long road to its September 1982 fall premiere and I thought the best way to present this would be in a timeline that I assembled, sourced from newspaper articles, interviews, press announcements, as well as information directly given to Forgotten TV. Writer Stephen E. D'Souza had written several episodes of ABC's The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman, and had been story editor on The Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries. For NBC, he had been a writer on Leslie Stevens' sci-fi Gemini Man and law drama *Rosetti and Ryan, both airing a few years earlier. In the wake of the success of Superman the Movie and with Superman II slated for a summer 1981 release and ABC developing a pilot movie featuring its own costumed hero, D'Souza recalls being approached by NBC to develop a TV series concept revolving around a teenage superhero, particularly inspired by the Smallville segment of the 1978 Superman film. I came up with this concept, and the network liked the element of Superman as a high school student, and he had problems with football teams and couldn't join because he was too good. That's what they were looking for. D'Souza's second draft script was turned in January 6, 1981, and in late February, development of Star Night was announced, featuring actor Peter Barton. Foreshadowing the seemingly endless confusion regarding the development of the series, NBC publicists inexplicably said it could be the happy days of the 1980s. The pilot would be about high school student David Starr, experiencing the joys and pains of adolescence, who gradually realizes he has powers that other human beings do not possess, including telekinesis. Comparisons to ABC's The Greatest American Hero were immediately made, even though Ralph would not discover the telekinesis power of the suit until November of that year. Star Night Filming was announced completed on March 30th. 25 year old Peter Barton had until recently been working in gas stations and restaurants to pay for school, changing his mind every few months about his career direction. The Long Island native had excelled in athletics in high school and assumed he'd go into his father's cement business when he grew up, which he initially did, but that lasted all of six months. For a time, he had the goal of being a pharmacist. To pay for the related schooling, he took his sister's advice to support his schooling by modeling. Only a month after signing with a modeling agency, he was flown out for an eight-day stay in Barbados modeling swimwear. The day he returned to Long Island, he found his agent had arranged for him to audition in L.A. for a TV role, along with 300 other hopefuls. He got the part in 1979's Shirley, which went on the air in October, where Barton starred opposite actress Shirley Jones as teenage son Bill. The family drama would not last past its initial 13-episode order, but it brought Barton a measure of recognition and led to other work. He did a pilot called Three Eyes, which didn't sell. His next project was the horror film Hell Night, alongside Linda Blair, Vincent Van Patten, and Kevin Brophy who had played TV's Lucan, The Wolf Boy. Hell Knight began filming November of 1980, wrapped right at the turn of the new year, and would be released at the end of August 1981. Hoping to take at least a month-long break from acting, instead, his agent again sent him out to L.A. to audition for another TV pilot. Barton would land the role on the project, called Star Night at the time. Reportedly, he beat out Tom Cruise for the role, and although this tidbit has been republished on many websites and even in several books, it seems to originate on IMDb trivia in 2002 and is unreferenced, so I can't speak as to its authenticity. Barton's co star on Star Night was Gerald S. O'Laughlin, playing Max, the mentor of young David Starr, a character and actor requested by NBC as explained by Stephen D'Souza. When we went to cast the show, the network insisted on an actor, Gerald O'Laughlin, to play the mentor character, which is completely miscast. He used a heavy accent. He talked in dis, dim, and doze. We ended up making him the janitor because you just couldn't believe he was anything else. There was just no sophistication to the character. He's a very common-cut type of guy. There's no way this character could be Obi-Wan Kenobi. 21-year-old Amy Steele rounded out the cast, playing very much a Lana Lang-type character and potential girlfriend for David. Steele was a native of Pennsylvania, where she studied dramatic arts and appeared in local theater. She was later discovered and entered modeling. She first acted on television in daytime dramas Guiding Light and All My Children, before being cast on Paramount's Friday the 13th Part 2, which wrapped just as Peter Barton began filming Hell Night. On April 11, 1981, about two weeks following the filming of the Star Night pilot, the first major setback for the eventual Matthew Star series took place. The Writers Guild of America went on strike putting virtually all writing for TV and film on hold for the duration. Under dispute was compensation in the then-new markets of pay TV and home video. Also in April, the TV networks were preparing for the May upfronts, where the new fall season was announced for network affiliates and advertisers. This was a particularly key year for number 3 network NBC, still trying to find its footing under exec Fred Silverman in his third year there. Silverman's failure to replicate the success he had at the other two networks had even been lampooned by the jingle singers at crushing enterprises, the same ones who had given voice to NBC's famous Proud as a Peacock campaign in a savage parody distributed privately via audio cassette amongst people in the industry. The joke was out, however, when morning host Don Imus played the jingle, on air, at WNBC. So loud, we're loud again,
1: the so For 1981,
0: NBC would be introducing 10 new series, and overhauling virtually its entire lineup. Among NBC's new planned shows for the fall season were Brett Maverick, featuring the return of James Garner, The Devlin Connection, a crime drama with Rock Hudson, Chicago Story, an ambitious crime drama with 90-minute anthology-style episodes, Father Murphy with Merlin Olsen, Love, Sydney, a sitcom with Tony Randall as a fussy 40-ish confirmed bachelor, which had been delayed from the prior year. McLean's Law with James Arness, and One of the Boys, a sitcom vehicle for Mickey Rooney. The new season would suffer delays of at least several weeks due to the strike, and some individual series would even suffer further setbacks. NBC's new lineup was read by the entertainment press as an attempt to play it safe by bringing back golden oldies actors such as Garner, Hudson, Arness, and Rooney in their respective series vehicles but also as a last-minute bow to pressure from self-appointed groups such as The Moral Majority and Coalition for Better TV, both threatening a massive television boycott for that fall. With the exception of Brett Maverick, the shows being developed for the veteran actors only had working titles at the time. Father Murphy, a Michael Landon-produced period family drama which could be seen as a spiritual successor to the aging Little House on the Prairie, especially seemed like an attempt to appease the morality watchdog groups and counterbalance the problematic Love, Sydney. With the Tony Randall series becoming a political hot potato already on the moral majority hit list, NBC began downplaying the fact that the character was a closeted gay man, with Randall saying it was the sort of show that conservative, family-oriented viewers ought to love. We'll have no car crashes, no stabbings or shootings, no fights, no TNA, and we won't have any stupid jokes that people ought to be ashamed of. Fred Silverman is reported to have quipped, Even Jerry Falwell will think it's terrific. But the early marketing and positioning of what became Matthew Starr may also have been influenced by the need for NBC to include family programming for its 1981 fall lineup. In addition to NBC's nine other new shows, the now-retitled Star Prince was announced for the 7 p.m., 6 central, Sunday night time slot as a fantasy-adventure series aimed at youngsters. This was the first of several name changes that would plague the series throughout development. The intended time slot is of note, as this would heavily influence the types of stories the series would be allowed to tell. A time slot previously held by Disney's Wonderful World and Here's Boomer, the 7, 6 central hour on Sunday was required by the FCC to be programmed with news, public interest, or children's programming that held educational value. This had previously caused numerous production issues for Galactica 1980, the prior year. Producers were prevented from showing content that was deemed too violent disagreements with the network censors were frequent on what constituted too violent and abc further required them to include educational content delivered by children thus the introduction of the super scouts following the may up fronts nbc planned to show the de souza pilot in a special advance airing on thursday may 14th before the nbc thursday night movie the broadcast premiere of 1979's Dracula. Then the decision to pull it at the last minute was made, in favor of Real People spinoff, Real Kids. This schedule change didn't make the print deadlines for many newspapers across the country, which promoted Night Star to air that night at 8, 7 central. Night Star... Yes, the name had changed yet again in the two weeks since the series had been first announced. Spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, this title would certainly have been eventually reconsidered after 1982's Knight Rider started being developed for NBC. What was going on behind closed doors at NBC? The network was facing serious internal problems, some of which was being played out publicly in the press. Fred Silverman had a lot on his plate with the fall schedule, attempting to appease not only advertisers, affiliates, shareholders, and morality groups, but also NBC parent company RCA and its board of directors, coming under fire for financial performance with the launch of its own video format that year, the Capacitance Electronic Disc, branded the RCA Selectivision Video Disc. There were also constant rumors that Silverman was going to resign, or that RCA would terminate and replace him. Entertainment columnist Tom Shales facetiously suggested third-place NBC simply resign as a TV network. But on June 30th, Fred Silverman did indeed resign as NBC president and was replaced by Grant Tinker. Unknown to the public, also in the month of June, there were developments with Night Star, now being called The Powers of David Star. The series pilot that had been screened for the press was getting mixed reviews. Dick Kleiner called it a good show, while later Lee Winfrey said it was a crude production, performed at only a slightly higher level than a Saturday morning cartoon show. Rough. NBC programming began to rethink this pilot and the story development of the series began to move away from some of the concepts in the D'Souza pilot, to the point of requesting a second pilot be produced, as had famously happened 16 years earlier with Star Trek. Stephen D'Souza I thought the first pilot was what the character was all about. I thought it was a very good episode, but then the network wanted to fine-tune things. Of course, writing a new pilot or series episodes would have to wait, as the industry was still in the middle of a writer's strike. While the show we saw would carry the credit created by Stephen D'Souza, he is not credited with any further work on the series, and what we ended up seeing was a combination of D'Souza's initial concepts, as well as the work of three additional creative voices in particular. First, Paramount producer Harv Bennett was tapped to be the executive in charge of production. Bennett had been quite busy that year with several irons in the fire. Since joining Paramount in 1980, he had been involved in returning the Enterprise to the big screen with a follow-up movie to 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. With Star Trek II in pre-production in 1981, he had been busy working with writer Jack Swords to develop Bennett's early story into a filmable script, then notably attempting to get Leonard Nimoy signed on to return as Spock for said story. Bennett was also busy enlisting Ingrid Bergman for the lead role in the biopic of former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir in the telefilm A Woman Called Golda. He was also in charge of the development of a little scene return of the classic 1950s panel show, Quiz Kids, slated for that fall. In the early 1940s, before television was a commercial success, Bennett had appeared as a regular contestant, as a boy, on the original Quiz Kids radio program. CBS Cable broadcast a short run of Quiz Kids in the fall of 1981, hosted by by Norman Lear, Bennett would be involved with what became the Matthew Star series on the condition that writer-producer Alan Balter would come on board as his supervising producer. Alan Balter, who had begun his entertainment industry career in the mailroom at 20th Century Fox, had been one of the six bright young men of Leslie Stevens' Daystar production company. As the head of publicity, he was involved in both Stony Burke and The Outer Limits, credited with pinning two episodes of that classic series. Balter formed a writing partnership with William Woodfield in 1964, and the pair wrote episodes of Irwin Allen's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, and The Time Tunnel. An interesting side note, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode The Monster's Web features a character named Bill Balter, a conglomeration of the names of the writing team, a rare inside joke on an Irwin Allen show. This must have gone unnoticed by Allen, who hated in-jokes on his programs. When they turned in an early script for Mission Impossible, they were hired as script consultants for that series. Woodfield's background in stage magic and sleight of hand served them well writing the elaborate operations the IMF became known for. Balter and Woodfield were also tasked to write an episode of Star Trek during its first season, but their story assignment was abruptly cancelled. They did write and produce the 1971 ABC movie pilot Earth-2, which did not get picked up for series. Their partnership seemed to come to an end after writing on CBS's short-lived attempt to adapt exploitation film Shaft to the small screen in 1973. After a falling out with Woodfield and now alone, Balter was offered the supervising producer role on the second season of Space 1999, but turned it down. Or perhaps it was Balter that got turned down, after his suggestion to fire series leads Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. Instead, Balter came on as a producer on the fourth season of The Six Million Dollar Man, staying through the end of the series. But here's where it gets interesting. During his time on Six Million Dollar Man, he wrote and produced the 1977 TV movie pilot for NBC called The Man with the Power. In that telefilm, 28-year-old science teacher Eric Smith discovers he not only has the powers of telekinesis, but that his father was an extraterrestrial sent to Earth on a mission some 30 years earlier and had a child with a human woman. Under the guidance of federal agent and family friend Walter Bloom, Eric learns to control and develop his powers, and is eventually assigned to protect an Indian princess on a state visit to America. The TV movie starred Tim O'Connor, Vic Morrow, Persis Kambata making her debut on U.S. television, John Delancey in one of his first acting roles, and virtually unknown Texas actor Bob Neal in the lead role. You might note this telefilm shares a title with the fourth episode of The Outer Limits, in which a mild-mannered college professor gains the power of telekinesis following a brain operation, to the chagrin of his domineering wife. And of course, plot, thematic elements, as well as the rules by which Eric's telekinesis powers worked, would later show up in Matthew Starr in just a few years. Closing out the 1970s, Balter worked as executive producer on the two Captain America TV movies for Universal and CBS. Although well-received and crossover events were said to be in the works, with characters from CBS's other superhero series, The Incredible Hulk, The Amazing Spider-Man, and even other proposed heroes like Submariner, development of any further Captain America movies or potential series were dropped. Why? Although the idea has been put forth that CBS was reluctant to develop any further comic book-related properties out of fear of being typecast as the superhero network, something even related in the early days of this podcast, my 2019 conversation with star Reb Brown revealed a different reason. During our informal conversation at a public appearance... He related that the license fee Marvel wanted to continue using the Captain America character jumped from a reasonable four figures to an incredible $50,000 per appearance. By contrast, the fee paid for the use of the Hulk character on his series was $2,500 per episode. This made any possible series for Captain America prohibitively expensive and that is the reason we never saw the character again on CBS. After producing an early 1980 ABC TV movie, Alan Balter, having a known heart condition, left the stress of Hollywood and retired to Australia with his family. This brings us back to the summer of 1981, when Harve Bennett recruited Balter to return to L.A. to help develop Matthew Starr write a revised pilot script, and serve as supervising producer of the series, now titled The Powers of David Starr. At the end of June, Lou Gossett Jr. was signed to the series in a recasting of the Max character, played by Gerald S. O'Laughlin in the D'Souza pilot. Gossett was an Emmy Award-winning actor for 1977's Roots, had been the lead in the extremely short-lived 1979 ABC medical drama The Lazarus Syndrome, and had just been seen on ABC's biopic Don't Look Back, the story of Leroy Satchel Page*. He also had just finished filming on the Paramount film An Officer and a Gentleman in Port Townsend, Washington, which would be released the following summer. Notably, however, Gossett had worked previously with Harv Bennett on episodes of The Mod Squad starting in 1968. With the writer's strike entering its final days in July, Peter Barton gave an interview with Starlog magazine, which gives us insight as to the series' concepts being developed at the time, even though the second pilot nor a single series script had yet been written. The program is based on a Superman-type story. My guardian, Max, and I come from another planet that is being consumed in a violent civil war. Since my parents are the king and queen of this world, they pack me off to Earth to grow up and return someday and help end their fight against the enemy forces. I don't want to put it into any one category because it's going to be exploring all directions. It's really a wide spectrum of fantasy, adventure, Science fiction, drama, it's a mixture of them all together, just like life. Since Matthew Starr is in the 7 to 8 p.m. slot on Sundays, there's going to be some educational points in the shows, but they will be stated in such a way that everyone from the youngest child to the adults will get their own degree of understanding. Matthew and Max will be hooked into the Pentagon, where we'll be helping each other out on different projects. A lot will revolve on their study of UFOs, I'll be meeting up with the passengers of some of these ships in the form of other refugees from my home planet. Some of them will be on my side and sympathetic to the cause, while others will try to destroy me. The article also debunked the previous misunderstanding printed in Variety that the upcoming series was somehow a spin-off of series Here's Boomer, confirmed NBC's plan to completely scrap the D'Souza pilot and start over the involvement of Paramount's Harve Bennett, and the planned premiere date of December 6th, all details which had yet to be released to the public, although this issue would not hit newsstands until October. The Writers Guild of America strike ended on July 12th, and rewriting the pilot could officially begin, with this task undertaken by supervising producer Alan Balter. A few elements of the concept were reworked, and Lou Gossett would not simply replace O'Loughlin as Max, but now play a new character called Walter Shepard, a nod to the Walter Bloom character played by Tim O'Connor in Balter's The Man with the Power. Series writers could now be recruited, and with NBC placing an order for 12 additional episodes, writing assignments could be given out giving the production just under five months to make the December 6th air date. On July 31st, it hit the press that the series had officially been given its fifth official title, The Powers of Matthew Starr, though this was not quite the end of the revolving title saga. On August 9th, Harve Bennett was publicly announced as the executive producer of the series. But on August 23rd, the next major setback of this series took place. Over the weekend, at home playing with his stepchildren on the living room floor, 56-year-old Alan Balter suffered a heart attack from which he died. Behind the scenes, Bennett brought in Robert Earle, a writer with nearly 70 hours of television under his belt, to not only finish writing the new pilot, but also replace Balter as supervising producer. Overcoming a youth of drug addiction, alcoholism, and crime, Robert Earle became clean and sober at age 27 and was a highly popular recovery circuit speaker throughout the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. With no high school diploma and working random jobs, he happened to come across an ad for a writing school and submitted a 500-word story based on a sample picture. During this course, he wrote practice scripts for TV shows Bonanza and The Virginian. One of the people in his recovery fellowship worked at Universal as a writer, and through him met Carol, the secretary to an associate producer on Ironside. He submitted a story idea through her, and eventually met with Ironside showrunner Cy shermack who gave him his first script assignment. Thus began a career in television writing, working on Switch, Starsky & Hutch, and Vegas, before being brought on board Matthew Starr. With the series still being developed, yet another name change was in the works, which amused the press, but perhaps not the NBC publicity department. On August 27th, the Cincinnati Post relayed the message from a clearly irritated NBC rep, as of today, it is the powers of Daniel Starr, and there are a lot more boys' names we can choose from. Columnist Michelle Greppi seemed to be the only reporter that got to the bottom of why the David Star name had been dropped, triggering additional title changes. An NBC rep had told her Paramount Legal instructed the name be changed due to the fact that it had previously been used in a 1952 Isaac Asimov novel, David Starr, Space Ranger, the first novel in Asimov's Lucky Star series that were printed under his pseudonym Paul French. Harve Bennett then spoke publicly to promote the upcoming series and confirmed that he was the one that renamed the character to Daniel Star. I didn't want to do that to Isaac, so I changed him to Daniel. Bennett also addressed any potential comparison to a certain DC Comics superhero in the wake of DC's plagiarism lawsuit against ABC's The Greatest American Hero. Really, the only similarity is that they both come from another planet. He wasn't popped into a time capsule. He was brought here by the character, played by Lou Gossett. Someday, Daniel Starr's destiny is to go back to his planet of origin and lead the revolution against the bad guys. So in that respect, it's King Arthur-like. Bennett's comments are doubly ironic, considering D'Souza had modeled the character after a teenage representation of Superman, as he revealed some 15 years later, as previously mentioned, and Barton's comments that would hit just a few weeks later in Starlog, and also considering another fall series we'll discuss in a minute. Daniel Starr didn't stick around for more than a couple of weeks before the title was changed back to The Powers of Matthew Starr, this time for good. However, the multiple series titles took time to work their way through the press, with this resulting in the oddity of the series being announced under two different names in TV Guide. In the 1981 Fall Preview issue, the Canadian TV Guide issues announced it as The Powers of Daniel Starr, with a full-page photo and paragraph, whereas U.S. versions gave the series only half a page under the correct title, The Powers of Matthew Starr. To add to the confusion, the actual write-up in the Canadian issues correctly referenced Matthew Starr, meaning they did get the memo of the latest name change but failed to update the header at the top of the page. With a new supervising producer in place, development of the series continued. The three-month-long writer's strike had of course delayed not only Matthew Starr, but the fall TV season altogether, for the second year in a row. Just like the actor's strike the prior year, covered in Forgotten TV episode 46, On Flow, most returning shows came back in October, while new ones were delayed until November or later. While waiting for New Fall TV, viewers could head to the local theater to catch Mommy Dearest, the John Belushi comedy Continental Divide, or see Peter Barton and Linda Blair in Hell Night all newly released. However, for NBC, it wasn't as simple as a couple-month delay. While their New Fall slogan claimed their pride was showing and five of their new series made it to air with the expected two-month delay. Many of their series suffered from a host of production problems. David Brinkley resigned from NBC News after a 38-year career, throwing a wrench into NBC Magazine, a primetime news series it could schedule during the wait for the return of the scripted shows. Contract negotiations resulted in both Eric Estrada and Gary Coleman missing from episodes of Chips and Different Strokes. James Garner was injured, falling off a mechanical horse during filming, delaying Brett Maverick another four weeks. A few episodes into production, 55-year-old Rock Hudson needed sudden open-heart surgery, pushing the Devlin connection to the following year. Cassian Company and One of the Boys were both pushed to mid-season due to production issues. And Chicago Story was delayed until March. And over at competing network CBS, one of their new fall series, their only new comedy that fall, was gaining traction for its constant comparisons to Matthew Starr.
1: in a garage is not exactly Camelot, but it's where I met Zack. I'm a wizard who works alone. Not anymore. Now they tell me I need an apprentice. And he's it. The Merlin? You have to be over 1600 years old. Well, I do 30 push-ups a day and I don't eat fried food. Did you part the Red Sea? Oh, I'm good, but I'm, I'm not that good.
0: Mr. Merlin was a fantasy sitcom starring character actor Bernard Hughes in the lead role as Max Merlin. Yes, the Merlin of King Arthur legend, now running a garage in modern-day San Francisco. Alongside Hughes was fresh-faced 23-year-old playing 15, Clark Brandon, as new apprentice Zach. Episodes would deal with Max Merlin educating young Zachary on how to use the powers of wizardry. The at least superficial similarities to Matthew Starr were not missed by the entertainment press, who were all too quick to point them out early in the summer, as well as the fact that both lead actors were young, teen idol types with dark feathered hair who looked so alike it might lead to viewer confusion. Mr. Merlin was created by Larry Tucker and Larry Rosen, who had brought to the TV screen Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice in 1973. They came up with the Mr. Merlin series concept the prior summer of 1980 and managed to sell the pilot and subsequent series to CBS without the backing of a major studio. Stories were cute and clever, and the show did well enough that CBS ordered a full season but not well enough to get picked up for a second year. Several TV critics who had screened both preferred Mr. Merlin's pilot over the D'Souza pilot of Matthew Starr and noted Merlin had superior special effects. TV columnists also pointed out both mentors were named Max and the name was overused that TV season, which may have influenced the renaming of the character now to be played by Lou Gossett. On October 13th, the first script for the Matthew Star series, Fugitives, was turned in by Judy Burns, and filming could finally begin. Barely a week and a half later, NBC conceded the show would not make the planned December 6th air date. Publicly blaming the delay on a variety of factors, Entertainment Division head Brandon Tartikoff admitted, A key cause was the death of Alan Balter, supervising producer. Also, the very sophisticated special effects required for each episode to illustrate the powers of Matthew Starr need complicated procedures and lots of time. The premiere was now pushed to the mid-season date of January 3rd. What this announcement didn't reveal was that the script for the new pilot was still being rewritten by Robert Earle, with it not being finished until November. Thus, three other episodes were being filmed first, Fugitives, Winning, and Experiment. But even if these episodes could be readied to air in time, they still had no pilot episode ready. The new series pilot, Jackal, finally went into production the second week of November. Meanwhile, Star Trek II The Vengeance of Khan began filming under director Nicholas Meyer over on Paramount's Stage 9, although the film would receive a retitling the following summer. All previous production delays paled in comparison to what happened on the night of November 12, 1981. During early filming of Jackal, tragedy struck. Stunt sequences were being filmed at Rocco's Auto Wrecking Yard in San Fernando. In the story, Matthew was there to rescue Shep from the alien pursuer played by Judson Scott, who kept igniting bright flares to blind Matthew to interrupt his powers. Shep was tied to a chair, at risk of being crushed by falling cars while surrounded by the burning flares. The actual stunt had already been filmed with the stuntmen, and Barton and Gossett were brought in for coverage, or close-up shots filmed to match the master shots of the stunt performers. While dragging Gossett on the chair out of the middle of several burning flares, Barton tripped and fell backwards onto one of the pyrotechnic flares, and Gossett fell on top of Barton. Since Gossett had wisely insisted He not actually be tied to the chair He was able to immediately roll off Barton Allowing Barton to roll off the flare Director of photography Hector Figueroa A burn victim himself Leapt into action Clearing the space around Barton And began ripping his clothes off his body The actors were rushed to LA County's USC Medical Center's burn ward Although Gossett experienced burns to the back of his head and hands and was treated and released, Barton was more seriously burned. Barton, 25, suffered second and third degree burns on his buttocks, lower back and right arm, when he accidentally fell onto one of several magnesium flares used to light a scene at an auto wrecking yard, said a spokesman for Paramount Studios. Barton suffered burns on anywhere from 12 to 18% of his body, depending on the source you read, was treated at the Sherman Oaks Burn Center for a month, and had to have four skin grafts. Even after being released, his injuries still were healing, and he wore pressure bandages into the following summer, and retained permanent burn scars on his buttocks. During his hospital stay, members of the Matthew Star* crew would visit, including executive producer Harv Bennett, which Barton commented on in the November 1982 issue of Starlog. He used to come up and visit me, and we wouldn't talk about the show. We'd just talk about our lives, and that's when I felt really close to Harv. When I got out, Star Trek II was still shooting, and I hardly saw him. <sighs> The shot where Barton fell incredibly appears to have been used in the episode. The pyrotechnics used in the scene were magnesium flares, which burn very brightly at a hot temperature and will even burn under water. Thus, water will not put out a magnesium fire, and sand or a dry fire extinguishing agent must be used. Magnesium flares were used in World War II dropped from airplanes to illuminate bombing targets at night and are used for defensive countermeasures as they will briefly burn hotter than the exhaust of an aircraft and distract heat-seeking weapons. The accident completely shut down production for four months. With any hope of making it to air that season now gone, the series was postponed until the 1982 fall TV season. In July 1982, just eight months after the Matthew Starr accident, the infamous helicopter crash on the set of Twilight Zone the movie took place, which killed actor Vic Morrow, seven-year-old Michael Din Le, and six-year-old Renée Shen Yi chin in a horrific stunt gone wrong. Whatever you may have heard about this case, the truth is far worse should you look into it. Then in August 1983, 10 crew members of ABC's The Fall Guy were injured when a runaway stunt car barreled into them in a stunt mishap. Their crew had been working in the very same filming location at Indian Dunes Park, where the Twilight Zone helicopter tragedy took place 13 months earlier. These accidents brought new attention to the issue of the safety of actors and stunt performers on film sets, particularly those for television productions, where the scheduling is far tighter than on a feature film. Unlike films of the era, which typically had a shooting length of anywhere from 60 to 90 days, in addition to months of pre- and post-production, a weekly TV series might be shot in as little as a week, on a script finished only days earlier. At a 1983 symposium of the Directors Guild of America, Matthew Starr Unit Production Manager Blair Gilbert, who I will note was not the UPM on Jackal, who had also worked on Charlie's Angels and Heart to Heart, commented on the shooting schedules he experienced working on various television productions. What a nightmare for a director and a stunt coordinator to have to walk into a show and work on stunts with a coordinator who has had only three days to prepare. Then there's the usual last-minute casting of actors, meaning the stunt coordinator doesn't know who many of his stunt people will be until the last minute, because he has to match his people to the actors. It's not right, and it's dangerous. While I never found any mention of an investigation or legal proceedings regarding the Matthew Starr accident, both Barton and episode director Ron Satloff have spoken regarding it. Satloff veteran TV director of The Amazing Spider-Man, Salvage One, and Quincy M.E., recounted the incident for the 1996 Philip Garcia book, Science Fiction Television Series. Peter was a young actor who was always trying to do something extra. That's why he got burned. He was trying to do more than he was asked to do, and that cost him. What Peter was instructed to do was come in and get to the chair and say dialogue, It was just a close-up. He didn't have to repeat any of the moves because the stunt had already been done. Basically, he just steps into the shot, says a few words to Lou, and starts making motions of moving the chair back, from which we'd cut to the stuntman doing all that. Instead of that, he leaned the chair back and he actually dragged it past the circle of flares. He tripped. He fell on one of the flares. Additionally, Barton recalled in a 1982 interview, I ran in like it was life and death, trying to get really involved. On the one hand, the director was supposed to say cut, and he didn't. But I was supposed to stop anyway, and I didn't. Following Barton's four months of recovery, filming resumed for Jackal on March 9, 1982, as more than half of the episode still needed to be completed. Barton points out that not only can you see a difference in his physical appearance and hair length in scenes from that episode shot before the accident versus after, he also seemed to visibly age. The event shifted me. Before the accident, I was 25 playing sixteen year olds. After the accident, I seemed weathered. With production now resumed to complete the initial episode order the show faced yet another challenge to deal with. Lou Gossett Jr. was committed to the film Jaws 3 in Florida, with that production having started principal photography on March 1st. When Matthew Starr resumed filming on March 9th, the actor started filming the two productions on alternate days, as he told Jet Magazine. They would let me off 10 o'clock at night in Florida. I'd get on a plane and come to Los Angeles, and they would pick me up 5.30 in the morning. I'd do my series for 10 hours. Then I'd come home, sleep for three hours, and go back to Florida. Nine days following the resumption of filming for Matthew Starr, and two and a half weeks into Jaws 3 filming, Sheriff's deputies showed up the night of March 18th at the Malibu home Gossett shared with his girlfriend, Honey Ruffner, and their respective children with a warrant resulting from allegations the couple had provided cocaine to their youngsters. He and Ruffner were arrested after less than a gram of cocaine was found in the home. Gossett was placed on bail and returned to work the following morning for filming, but obviously had to deal with the legal fallout from the arrest as well as having his seven-year-old son in foster care for five weeks while the charges worked their way through the court system. While the couple did have to face felony possession charges, no evidence of child endangerment was ever found, and no charges relating to that were made. The claims of child endangerment turned out to have originated with Gossett's ex-wife. The possession charges were dismissed on the stipulation Gossett Complete, a one-year drug program. Production on the remaining eight Matthew Star episodes continued until filming wrapped in late May 1982 without any further reported incident. The series was now slated to premiere during the 1982 fall season, along with two other series that would undoubtedly share much of the same audience. Knight Rider and Voyagers. With the fall slogan, just watch us now, the new fall shows began to be promoted. The original intended time slot of Sunday at seven, six central was dropped in favor of Fridays at eight, seven central as the lead-in to new series, Knight Rider, opposite CBS's popular The Dukes of Hazard, and sitcoms on ABC. Matthew Starr was NBC's first new show to air that fall. The opening segment used for the first half of the series showed large spacecraft closing in and firing on the planet Quadris, accompanied by expository voiceover by Lou Gossett in character as Shep, establishing that an unnamed intergalactic armada conquered the planet. Escaping with the Crown Prince, known on Earth as Matthew Starr, in a craft to the nearest planet, his guardian, Walter Shepard, will train Matthew in the use of his powers until he can one day return and free his people. The spaceship and visual effects in the title sequence are credited to the Fantasy II and Image Three effects houses, as well as Michael Miner. Fantasy II Film Effects was founded by effects master Gene Warren, Jr., and their work would be seen on Gremlins, The Terminator, Aliens, Flight of the Navigator, and a seemingly endless list of films, down to the present, often working with filmmaker James Cameron. Warren, Jr. was the son of Gene Warren, Sr., also an accomplished effects designer who had worked on George Powell's The Time Machine. Warren Jr. left us in 2019 and passed the family business on to his son, Gene Warren III, who continues working in the family business today. Michael Miner was an illustrator and art director who had worked on the original Star Trek, designing the Tholian and Malkotian alien races, as well as the Tholian web, used in the episode of the same name. His designs for a revised bridge Transporter room, engineering, and crew quarters influenced what we saw on the refit of the USS Enterprise in Star Trek The Motion Picture and later productions. Other credits included the Saturday morning romp The Lost Saucer, the miniseries The Winds of War, and 1983's Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Miner died far too early in 1987 at age 46 originally producers tapped the legendary team of mike post and pete carpenter to compose music for matthew starr that season their music could be heard on magnum pi tales of the gold monkey and the greatest american hero the 70s and 80s were full of post carpenter themes often working with producer Stephen j cannell among the numerous tv themes they had also provided the music for were Captain America and Captain America Death Too Soon, produced by Matthew Stars, Alan Balter. Post and Carpenter scored the music for the second pilot, Jackal, and it was okay, but it clearly wasn't their best work. Jackal notably didn't have an opening theme or segment, and without a main theme to incorporate, there was no audio through line for the episode score. Therefore, the sound was of a more generic 80s show nature. But many of the music cues during scene transitions absolutely had that post-Carpenter sound. However, Post and Carpenter did not end up composing the series theme we heard for the next 11 episodes that accompanied the series opening segment. That theme was composed by Michael Rubini and Denny Yeager who that same year provided the theme for the CBS daytime drama, Capital. The following year, they contributed original music for Tony Scott's moody and haunting vampire film, The Hunger, a soundtrack that also incorporated music from Schubert, Bach, and Delib, under musical director Howard Blake. Rubini went on to compose the scores for HBO's The Hitchhiker and Tales from the Crypt, as well as the 1986 Michael Mann film Manhunter. The opening segment that accompanied the later Bruce Lansbury-produced episodes that removed any expository voiceover had a theme composed and performed by Johnny Harris. The Scottish composer had moved to the States in the early 1970s, working with Paul Anka and Odia Coates on various hit singles. Then in 1978, he landed a gig as musical director for Linda Carter's summer show at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. It was Carter who facilitated him being brought in to arrange the third version of the theme of Wonder Woman and compose music for third season episodes. Working under producer Bruce Lansbury. Perhaps you remember his jazzy arrangement. Lansbury then brought him in to provide music for Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Specifically, the first 40 seconds of musical underscore that accompanies the William Conrad narration before the Stu Phillips theme kicks in a theme that should be familiar to forgotten TV listeners. For the 1980 Buck Rogers episode, Space Rockers, he came up with this ditty. makes you want to pick up your light ropes and boogie. Gamers might also recognize it from the 2004 Rockstar game, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. After Matthew Starr, Harris provided music for some episodes of the short-lived Partners in Crime with Linda Carter and Lonnie Anderson. Harris died in early 2020 at age 87. I have to say that of the two, I clearly prefer the Rubini-Jaeger theme, although I will say the Harris theme lends itself better for musical arrangements during the actual episodes, especially when slowed down. And is it me, or is there a touch of Buck Rogers at the end? Zack Mayo had no business defying the odds,
1: let alone beating them. You ready to quit now, Mayo? gotta program yourself. You'll make it. How did you slip into this program? You kick me out of here, but I ain't quit. you quit. But first, you have to get past me. Understand? Don't you understand? I love you. Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman rated R. Imagine having time in the palm of your hand. Able to team up with the greatest heroes and make love to the prettiest heroines. If anybody knows women? Squaw. So jump in on the action, adventure, and fun. <laughs> Solid days work Have the time of your life with Voyagers, Sunday to 7, 6, Central to Notten on NBC.
0: The directors of Matthew Star included the aforementioned Ron Satloff, who helmed four episodes. Guy Mager, an Egyptian TV director known for Hardcastle and & McCormick and Blue Thunder, directed three. Barry Crane, who had done Wonder Woman, The Fantastic Journey, and Whiz Kids, did two episodes. The prolific Leslie H. Martinson, Paul Krasny, Corey Allen, and Vincent McAveety were among the directors of remaining episodes. As previously noted, Leonard Nimoy was tapped for the episode The Triangle, which dealt with Matthew's backstory and Quadrian mythology. This was Nimoy's third directorial effort for television, and he would be tapped next to direct co-star William Shatner on T.J. Hooker, then 1984's Star Trek III The Search for Spock. Nimoy commented on the episode in a newspaper column, I did this Matthew Starr as a favor for Harv Bennett, who's the executive producer of the series. I thought he wanted me because this show is about the Bermuda Triangle mystery that we've covered on In Search of. Most of the stories in Matthew Starr have dealt with Matthew's troubles in high school, adjusting his powers as an extraterrestrial to daily life. For this episode, they wanted something very specialized for me, a science fiction base. They wanted to explore Matthew's relationship to his home planet. That episode was penned by Richard Christian Matheson and Tom Shalazi, who were among the 11 writers that contributed to the first dozen series episodes. As executive story editors, however, they were responsible for what made it from script to screen more than anyone else, working as liaison between the producers and the writers evaluating and making any needed changes to scripts. Matheson and Shalazi worked together as story editors on Quincy M.E., Hardcastle and McCormick, and the A-Team during their dozen years as writing partners, and together penned the 1987 film Three O'Clock High. I reached out to Mr. Shalazi, who commented on his time working with writing partner Matheson on Matthew Starr. My favorite memory was working on one of our originals with a director you may have heard of, Leonard Nimoy. He was very cooperative and we loved working with him. It was pretty heady stuff for a pair of young writers, and we learned a lot from Leonard, as we did from the executive producer, Harve Bennett. The experience came in handy for us when we landed our subsequent gigs most especially dealing with the high-profile pressures of working on the A-Team for Stephen J. Cannell. Matthew Starr was a better show than its relatively short life might imply, and it was a pretty good introduction for us to the upper echelon workings of series television. Fans of classic genre television will find Matheson's name familiar. He indeed is the son of the acclaimed Richard Matheson, Writer of 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone, the 1954 novel I Am Legend, which has been adapted into three feature films, and 1972's The Night Stalker, which inspired the series Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Matheson and Shalazi have continued to write for print, TV, and film. Shalazi has written for SeaQuest, Star Trek Voyager, and The Outer Limits, and today teaches screenwriting at Loyola Marymount University in L.A. Matheson is a prolific fiction writer and is also considered an expert on the occult, working with the UCLA Parapsychology Labs, studying paranormal phenomenon. He was involved in the investigation of the case upon which the 1982 film, The Entity, was based. The content the writers brought to the original dozen episodes featured Matthew balancing high school and a girlfriend while ditching the infrequent alien armada assassin, all while developing his otherworldly powers with the goal of eventually returning to his home planet as king. It is of note that Matthew's adventures arose out of his regular high school life and interactions instead of structured government assignments, only going on a single government mission in these episodes. Since the series was originally planned for early Sunday evening, some of those educational tidbits required by the FCC made it into episodes, particularly the ones produced early on. Thus, in Winning, we learned about Light Refraction and Roy G. Biv. In Mother, we heard about the Alvarez Hypothesis, and in Fugitives, we have Pam define what EKG and EEG medical tests are. This fizzled out after it was clear the show would not make the 1981-82 to 82 schedule and would thus likely not be scheduled in this time slot. Although the opening segment declares that enemies constantly come to destroy them, this story element was not overused and we only saw it twice. Thus, the series skirted the fugitive trope. The mythology of Quadrus is expanded on. They also largely avoided the girlfriend-in-danger story element, so typical of superhero storytelling. Still, Amy Steele's Pam seemed reminiscent of Lana Lang the girl that lived next door to the Kents in the original Superboy comics in the 1950s. Lana was always suspicious of Clark always disappearing at the oddest times. Likewise, the mysteries around Matthew's past never add up for Pam, and she looked forward to the promised explanations that never came. Filming for these first dozen episodes was done mostly on location in La Mirada, California. Located about 25 miles from Paramount Studios, La Mirada, which means the look in Spanish, is a town sandwiched between Anaheim and Los Angeles proper, with a population of 40,000 at the time of production. La Mirada was founded by mapmaker Andrew McNally, of the Rand McNally Company, and son-in-law Edwin Neff in the late 19th century, when parcels of his ranch were sold off. Envisioned as a colony of country gentlemen, inhabited by both well-to-do Easterners that had made their way west, as well as the man with a few thousand that could put 25% down, the area would be covered in lemon and olive tree groves, providing an industry based on olive oil and citrus fruit distribution. This invited road, railway, and additional infrastructure development. By the time of the 1920s, when the relatively new Hollywood began cranking out films by the hundreds per year, the area began to be used as a filming location. Some of the Andy Gump silent comedies were filmed there, as well as other titles likely lost to time. So when a blue 10-passenger Paramount van pulled up to the recently abandoned local high school in late 1981, it turned into a big deal for La Mirada. The William Neff High School had closed at the end of the 1980-81 school year due to decreasing student enrollments as the area was becoming less residential and more industrialized. The closed school was thus perfect for filming locations needing a school setting as it provided a complete campus where crews didn't have to work around the presence of students or faculty. Matthew Starr made extensive use of the location, inside and out. Mock up signs and banners dubbing it Crest Ridge High School were made up, using the existing Trojans mascot. The same establishing shot of the front of the school was used in nearly every one of the initial dozen episodes seen. They always seemed to be having a Trojans versus Tigers game. The Tommy Trojan mascot statue is also prominently visible in several episodes. In late 1982, some scenes for the film Valley Girl were also shot at Neff, and possibly other productions used the location. Neff High School was demolished in the summer of 1983, and the area is now an industrial center used by several freight companies as it is just east of Interstate 5. Matthew Starr also did a lot of filming nearby Neff in La Mirada neighborhoods. The house used as Matthew and Shep's residence was easy to find on Google Maps, with the address number being clearly visible on the DVD, as well as the unique wishing well structure seen in the front yard. Most TV houses have famously unmatching interiors and exteriors, as normally, Exteriors are filmed once for establishing shots, while interior scenes for weekly TV are shot on a studio soundstage and have no relation to the interior layout of said home as seen on the show. See The Brady Bunch, The Waltons, Happy Days, and so on. However, watching these episodes of Matthew Starr, interiors closely matched up to the exterior of this house on Trisha Lane and the actors were clearly filmed in front of the house as well as coming and going out the front door. My suspicions that they had filmed interiors on location inside the house were confirmed when I found an account by the members of the Lund and Palace families in the 2013 book Reflections from McNally's Mirror, which contains stories about the history of La Mirada. They relate how that blue Paramount van filled with location scouts parked across the street from the Lund home on Trisha Lane. Explaining they were looking for a home to use as a filming location near the closed Neff High School a half mile away, they asked if they could tour the property. Location scouts were impressed with the mid-century home's front yard, its large pink mimosa and pepper trees, as well as the spacious backyard the palace home directly across the street could be used as a staging and pass-through area, and production trailers could park in the alley behind it. On filming days, a crew of 100 people would show up at 6 a.m. Craft service tables would be set up in the driveway across the street, and the London Palace families could partake in the well-appointed spread of food. Paramount evidently funded this department well, as dinners would frequently include fare like filet mignon and lobster. Lou Gossett, Peter Barton, Amy Steele, and the crew would make themselves at home, and Mrs. Lund always had a pot of coffee brewing for them. The Lund's backyard can be seen in Tom Green's episode, Genius, where Matthew plays ping pong with himself using his powers. And according to Alice Pallets, Peter was taught how to play ping-pong there, in the backyard, prior to the scene. Most interior scenes representing Matthew and Shep at home for the first dozen episodes were indeed shot inside the house. And many scenes showing Matthew or other characters driving were filmed on Trisha Lane and adjacent streets in the neighborhood. But what about those later episodes? Being scheduled against the popular Dukes of Hazard on Fridays, Matthew Starr fought an uphill ratings battle during its initial episode order. The show started off the season ranked 38th for the week, before dropping into the five lowest-rated shows for its second outing. It finished 1982 as 67th out of 73 shows on television, with the Duke boys much higher on that list as number 33. Normally, this is the territory of almost certain cancellation. But keeping Matthew Starr must have been the best available option to NBC, considering the fact that production delays had reduced the number of mid-season replacement possibilities. But along with an order for the nine remaining episodes of the season, the back nine in TV lingo, came an NBC directive to reduce the show's budget and retool the story format away from high school stories, in favor of that of a more typical 80s action-adventure series. The expense of going out to film on location in La Mirada was an easy budget cut to make. After the first dozen episodes, they didn't film inside the Lund home again, and only the previously filmed exterior continued to be used as an establishing shot. Instead, a soundstage set was dressed reusing wall decor previously seen in Matthew's bedroom to represent a den or rec room and all remaining scenes depicting Matthew and Walt at home were now set in this single room. Neff High School was used only once at the beginning of the back nine episodes and never seen again. More concerning, however, was the significant change in story format for the show. Rather than change the series away from the original core concept, executive producer Harve Bennett evidently opted to leave the series. NBC pursued Steven D'Souza to return to the series, but he had moved on to Universal and was busy producing the first season of Knight Rider. So Bruce Lansbury, a producer NBC and Paramount had a history with, was brought in to retool the show. Lansbury had previously been EP of NBC's The Fantastic Journey and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. He had also gotten a reputation for successfully taking over series from other producers. In 1966, he took over the reins for The Wild Wild West, when that show's creator unexpectedly died, and ran the series for its remaining seasons. In 1969, he began producing Mission Impossible for Paramount, where he phased out international missions for the IMF team, thus reducing production costs. And in 1977, he became supervising producer for the retooled Wonder Woman for its second and third seasons. Peter Barton commented on the changing producers in the aforementioned Philip Garcia book. He was brought in to sort of fix it. It was too much. There was too much tension. I loved Danny Wilson, the first producer. I loved Harve Bennett, the second producer." However, Barton stopped short of proclaiming such praise for Lansbury. As part of the major budget cuts, the same soundstage sets would repeatedly be reused across episodes, and lots of motel rooms were seen, as Matthew and Walt would now go out on missions for the government away from home every week. New writers were brought in as Bruce Shelley took over for Matheson and Shalazi as executive story editor, and none of the previous writers were used again. In an episode structure typical to a generic action-adventure series, Act One would now often begin showing the events the criminal element were up to that will require Matthew and Walt's intervention, leading into their comm rings flashing and being called in for a mission. A note about the com ring props. These resembled a jeweled high school class ring that both Matthew and Walt wore, which flashed and made a sound when activated. They obviously only had one working prop, as both rings were never shown to be flashing at the same time. As I mentioned during the episode rundown, the characters also changed. Amy Steele was dropped from the cast as the high school storyline was completely abandoned. Along with Matthew's new powers came changes to his character. With no regular girlfriend, Matthew now came across as a player, and he presented himself as an adult on their missions, flirting and making out with older women, with the new powers that be, forgetting or ignoring the fact that he was only supposed to be 16. Lou Gossett's Shep was now called Walt, who suddenly has a host of abilities to do anything the story requires. Fly a plane, be the world's greatest car dealer, expert motorcycle mechanic, the brains behind a bank heist, and so on. Many viewers will agree the changes turned the series into a completely different show, as commented on by Peter Barton. All of a sudden it's I Spy, and here we are. I'm supposed to be Robert Culp, and Lou's supposed to be Bill Cosby. It went too far. In the beginning, it was like family science fiction, and now we're doing I Spy, which is not what it's supposed to be, and it got too confusing. Stephen D'Souza agreed. They went off track in the last nine episodes of the season. They brought in a government character and created missions for our government. I think that was the mistake for the series because they severed all their ties to what made the series unique. Yes, the entire backstory, mythology, and reason Matthew was on Earth was forgotten, as his eventual return to Quadrus to free his people was never mentioned again. If I may borrow from writer Jason Hink, they may as well have changed the name of the series to Matt and Walt, Secret Agents. The changes failed to improve the ratings, and Matthew Starr finished the season ranked 85th out of 98 shows. After giving the series an entire season run, NBC announced its cancellation in early May 1983. Voyagers, The Devlin Connection, Father Murphy, and Love, Sydney would also not be returning. Among NBC's new series announced for fall 1983, Jennifer Slept Here, Manimal, Mr. Smith, The Rousters, and the infamous We Got It Made. NBC was in for another rough season. Five years after the Matthew Star series went off the air, U.S. viewers would see the debut of two first-run syndicated series that offered their own takes on the teenage superhero concept. Both series would coincidentally debut the first week of October, 1988. First, DC's primary comic hero would return to weekly television for the first time in 30 years, albeit in a younger form. Superboy, brought to the screen by producers Alexander and Ilya Salkind, hit RTVs the week of October 3rd, distributed by Viacom. The Salkinds had previously produced the first three Superman films, as well as 1984's Supergirl. The series was part of the 50th anniversary celebration of the Superman character that year. Unable to develop a Superman series, having sold their rights to the Superman character in 1985 to Golan Globus, the Salkinds retained the rights to Superboy and other related characters and settled for the next best thing. Established separate from both their own movie series as well as comic book continuity, which had erased the Superboy character with John Byrne's Man of Steel reboot, the series harked back to the earlier Silver Age, when the Superboy comics explored Superman's younger days in Smallville, Kansas. The series presented an updated Clark Kent, Lana Lang, and Lex Luthor attending Schuster University in present-day 1988, and the introduction of Superboy to the world. Early episodes were rough, low budget, and suffered from being shown out of production order. When renewed for a second season, John Hames Newton was replaced with 30-year-old actor Gerard Christopher in the lead role, and Sherman Howard was brought in to play Lex Luthor, a vast improvement over Scott James Wells. Stacy Hyduk portrayed Lana Lang throughout Superboy's four seasons. For the third season, most of the behind-the-scenes crew was changed, as was the story format, with Clark and Lois now interning at the Bureau for Extranormal Matters that investigated paranormal and extraterrestrial activities. This interestingly predates the X-Files by three years. The series was, well, comic booky and uneven with director David Nutter partially attributing this to the difficulty of writing for the 30-minute format. But some interesting stories were presented, and several established comic book writers wrote for the series, such as Mike Carlin, Carrie Bates, and Denny O'Neill. Production values in writing also greatly improved over the course of the series. While there seemed to be critics of both Newton and Christopher, Hajduk and Howard are generally praised as the standout acting performances for the show. The series became quite popular, becoming the number one first-run half-hour in U.S. syndication, seen in 92% of the U.S. However, a legal battle between Viacom, Warner Brothers, and the Salkines oddly kept the show from being rerun on American television. Superboy showed us what a teenage superhero show looked like, played broadly, and including the traditional superhero tropes.
1: This is better than my imagination. This is more than a dream come true. Without the slightest bit of hesitation, I knew what I was meant to do. Ooh.
0: The same week Superboy debuted, the Canadian-produced My Secret Identity also hit weekly syndication in the U.S., distributed by Universal Television. Created by writer-producers Brian Levant and Fred Fox Jr., the target audience for the 30-minute lighthearted adventure was clear, as it was co-produced by Scholastic Films and aired in many U.S. markets on Saturdays in a daytime programming block often alongside shows like Superboy and Out of This World. TV had entered a golden age of first-run syndication, much of it spurred by the success of Paramount's Star Trek The Next Generation, and you could spend most of your Saturday watching first-run off-network programming. The Monsters Today, War of the Worlds, Freddy's Nightmares, Monsters, Friday the 13th The Series, and so on. Many students might recall first hearing about the show at school, via Scholastic News, or picking up the paperback adaptation. In the show, 14-year-old Andrew, played by a post-stand-by-me Jerry O'Connell, who at age 13 while filming the pilot, had lost quite a bit of his childhood chubbiness, lives next door to his friend, experimental scientist Dr. Jeff Coate. One day, Andrew is struck by a gamma-ray beam in Jeff Jeffcoat's lab, and develops the superpowers of invulnerability, super speed, and the ability to levitate. Being a total comic book nerd, Andrew takes a super oath and dubs himself Ultraman. Subtle it wasn't, but the show picked a tone and earnestly stuck with it throughout its first season. Andrew's developing powers were a clear metaphor for puberty, especially in early episodes. Stories dealt with Andrew covertly helping people as the plainly clothed Ultraman while dealing with problems at school and home. The series underwent a minor tonal shift for its second season, as star Jerry O'Connell began emerging as a muscular teen hunk. Andrew propelling himself in the air with aerosol cans was dropped, as was the Ultraman moniker, and he stopped hanging around quite so much with Dr. Jeffcoat, as writers introduced a peer for Andrew in the form of teenage friend, Kirk. The problems Andrew faced became more typical of those older teens face as he matured. The third season intro emulated a license-to-drive type buddy adventure, now sporting a rock-and-roll theme. Andrew also traded his bicycle for fast cars, windsurfing, and motorbikes. Steven D'Souza himself drew comparisons between Matthew Starr and My Secret Identity. Saying of Matthew Starr, If the show had dealt with the problems of a superhuman kid fitting in his normal life with periodic danger, excitement, and mystery due to his special nature, the show would have worked. They showed the lighter approach with My Secret Identity. It was comedic, not quite a sitcom. It had a lighter touch, but it was exactly that idea. D'Souza might be surprised to learn what spurred the creation of My Secret Identity. Co-creator Brian Levant just recently related to entertainment website Joe Blow that the origins of My Secret Identity ironically came out of a conversation with none other than NBC's Brandon Tartikoff when discussing show concepts the network would be favorable to develop. One of them was, I want something like Back to the Future with a kid and a scientist or an adult figure. And immediately I kind of thought of myself at 10 and starting to be an avid comic collector and how into it I was. And I thought to myself, What if a kid whose dream came true, who somehow developed powers and abilities, and it jumped out and formed kind of easily in my head? Of course, Levant and Fox ended up developing the series with Universal and Sunrise Films for Canada's CTV and first-run syndication, and not for U.S. Network TV. My Secret Identity producers allowed the tone of the series to mature along with its lead actor and audience with the show performing well in syndication, being sold to 35 countries, and winning the 1989 International Emmy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Programming for Children and Young People. Back in late 1982, on the other hand, NBC, either oblivious to or choosing to ignore the original target audience of Matthew Starr, chose to go the opposite direction in a misguided effort to broaden the appeal of the show to a more adult audience. NBC reran The Powers of Matthew Starr during the summer of 1983, and then the series went away. Other than it airing in Australia in 1985, I can't find records of any other reruns until the launch of a certain cable network. The Future of Television arrives September 24th. Sci-Fi Channel. When the Sci-Fi Channel launched, Matthew Starr returned September 24, 1992, almost exactly a decade after its initial premiere. Sci-Fi ended up running the series for several years. It was later run by TV Land and more recently by Nostalgia Network, MeTV. Unfortunately, the series is not fondly remembered by everyone. In 2002, TV Guide named it 22nd on their list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. By their ranking, that made it worse than Super Train, Pink Lady and Jeff, 1992's Whoops, and 1972's Me and the Chimp. We've talked about this list before. After MASH, Hello Larry, and Manimal make the top 15. Still, a few years ago, Matthew Starr was released on DVD in its entirety by boutique studio VEI, the same studio that released Angie, The Immortal, The Bad News Bears, as well as classic established hits like Baywatch and Cagney and Lacey. It is still in print at time of this recording, available as either a standalone release or as part of a six sci-fi TV series collection that also includes the 1970 series, The Immortal. To cap off our Matthew Starr timeline, I present this oddity. In 2017, noted speculative fiction writer Harlan Ellison's authorized biography, A Lit Fuse, was released. We've talked about Harlan Ellison before. You might recall Ellison and writing partner Ben Bova sued ABC and Paramount Pictures in 1980 over the origins of the series Future Cop, which is thoroughly discussed in podcast episode 31. At a time when no writer had ever successfully sued a Hollywood studio over plagiarism, Ellison and Bova won a landmark judgment against the defendants with a jury finding the series infringed on the Brillo teleplay the pair had previously shopped to ABC. In Chapter 8 of A Lit Fuse, you can read this account. Shortly after the Brillo settlement, Ellison had another cause to go up against Paramount. His pilot script for The Other Place, which he had written for Universal, turned up at Paramount. This was a lawsuit I didn't have to bring. He says, It was a fantasy for which I wrote the pilot and the show Bible. It was never published until Fantagraphics magazine published my treatment. It was about a young prince from another dimension who flees, gets into our time, and monsters come after him through the same rift, and he fights them off. This was not time travel, this was dimensional travel. Paramount ripped it off shortly after I had won the Brillo suit. I saw one episode of it. I called my attorney. He called over to Paramount and sent the evidence. The attorney at Paramount was a sensational guy, John Davies. He called back and said, How much do you want? They settled immediately for a high-five, low-six-figure lawsuit. Never made any noise about it. The series was The Powers of Matthew Starr, created by Stephen E. Souza that ran from 1982 to 1983. End quote. I obtained a copy of The Other Place and can't determine any real similarities between Ellison's busy and complex fantasy story to what we saw on Matthew Starr. Repeated attempts to contact Stephen D'Souza for this podcast were unsuccessful. I'll note this was hardly the end of Harlan Ellison's legal accusations. Ellison asserted that James Cameron's 1984 film, The Terminator, had been adapted from Soldier, his 1964 episode of The Outer Limits. A credit line now appears on the Terminator films, acknowledging the works of Harlan Ellison. In 2011, he sued the makers of the Andrew Nicole film, *In Time, seeking an injunction against its release with the claim it was based on his 1965 short story, Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. The matter was dropped after Ellison actually screened the film. Ellison even sued an individual for posting some of his stories on a Usenet newsgroup back in 2000, along with AOL for providing access to said newsgroup. The individual settled for $3,600, with a much more legally complex case with AOL, drug on for four years. Then there was the time Ellison mailed one of his publishers 213 bricks, postage due, followed by a dead gopher he killed in his backyard with a 22. He was a unique individual. Peter Barton, at the height of his Matthew Star popularity, was receiving up to 10,000 fan letters a week. However, he didn't seem to let his TV fame go to his head. He reportedly was frugal with his TV earnings, driving a beater car around L.A., living in a modest one-bedroom apartment, and investing his acting money in T-bills. When the series ended and no work was on the horizon, he considered giving up acting, as he told writer Peter Brack for his book, Crystal Lake Memories. By the end of 83, it had all dried up. That whole experience, I was going up and down, like on a roller coaster. I was on such an incredible high, no drugs, just high, that when I came out the other side, I crashed. That's when I wanted to give up acting, and that's when the final chapter came along. I was like, I really don't want to do Friday the 13th. Eventually, I only did it because of Amy Steele. She talked me into it. And I thought it was really cool because it was the final chapter. In my mind, I thought, oh, I'll be in the last one. That's kind of cool. These things are famous. Little did I know. Yes, Barton returned to the world of horror in 1984's Friday the 13th, the final chapter which turned out to be far from the final film in that franchise. Andy continued working in TV, and in 1988 was cast as Dr. Scott Granger on the CBS daytime drama The Young and the Restless, appearing in nearly 200 episodes in a five-year story arc. In 1994, he again landed a series lead role in the light-hearted CBS police drama Burke's Law, a revival of the mid-1960s series of the same name, with Barton playing the son of the original police chief, Amos Burke, co-starring alongside Gene Barry. Burke's Law lasted two brief seasons. In 1997, he joined the cast of new NBC daytime drama Sunset Beach, which ran for two years, and he returned to appear again on The Young and the Restless in 2005. But at some point, the phone just stopped ringing and acting roles dried up. However, in 2012, he had an unexpected development in his life when he received a letter in the mail from an Illinois lawyer that he initially was convinced was a scam. The letter named both he and fellow actor Kevin Brophy, who, recall, had acted with Barton in 1981's Hell Night, as the beneficiaries of the estate of an Illinois man, neither actor had ever met. When 71-year-old Ray Folk of Lincoln, Illinois, died, his will was discovered to have left $5,000 to the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago, an animal welfare charity. But the next line in the will was the one that even left Mr. Folk's executor scratching his head. I give and bequeath all my tangible property to my friends. Kevin M. of San Fernando, California and Peter Barton of Valley Stream, Long Island, New York. Fulk was a loner with no immediate family who drove a 1960s Ford truck and lived simply on his 167-acre property in a farmhouse with no running water. However, he did have a television, and when he was in his late 30s, had taken a liking to the 1977 ABC series Lucan and its star Kevin Brophy. Lucan was covered on podcast episode 16. Folk was an admirer and lover of his pet dogs as well as wolves. He wrote essays about wolves and kept a collection of pictures and posters of them. A passage in one of his many diaries called Wolves The Most Maligned, Least Understood Animal That Shares My Same Distrust of Humanity. Mr. Falk kept a scrapbook of Lucan with TV guide clippings from each original airing, creating his own episode guide along with print ads, newspaper articles, handwritten essays about the show, and a Lucan poster that evidently had been on his wall for some 35 years. The scrapbook had a section dedicated to Kevin Brophy, complete with the autographed photo of the star the production had sent him back in 1979 When he wrote to the actor, Falk's connection to Peter Barton was not initially as evident, but he clearly also felt a connection to Matthew Starr, a series that came on the air the year after his mother's death. Falk, in his early 40s, had written at length about Matthew Starr's powers in his diaries and essays. Peter Barton told Jamie Colby of Fox Business I started reading these letters and, like, wow. This guy is talking about astral projecting. He's talking about things that my character did. It's like he was searching and he saw Matthew Starr and he went, Oh my God, I think he was a really smart guy who kind of built a cage around himself and couldn't get out. Ray Falk's estate ended up amounting to $1.3 million, split between the two actors. Barton and Brophy both visited Lincoln and hosted a fundraiser for Mr. Falk's favorite animal charity. Kevin Brophy, who rarely acted after the mid-80s, lived a modest life and had become a doorman at the Hotel Bel Air in 1983, a job he kept for 27 years until the hotel closed for remodeling. One year after the inheritance, he was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, and the funds paid for the top medical care that saved his life. Today, Kevin Brophy is again a doorman, now at the swanky Lux Hotel on Rodeo Drive. The funds enabled Peter Barton to resolve a family living situation and be financially secure enough to retire from acting. As of a few years ago, Barton and Brophy were shopping their strange inheritance story to producers for potential development into a feature film with the working title, The Wild Man. In 1983, three days after the last regular Matthew Starr episode aired, Lou Gossett Jr. became the first African American to win an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for An Officer and a Gentleman. Post Matthew Starr, fans have enjoyed his appearances on films like Enemy Mine, The Iron Eagle series, Firewalker, and Toy Soldiers. In the late 1990s, however, After turning 60, his health deteriorated to the point he was told he had six months to live. In 2001, it was discovered his Malibu home had a serious infestation of toxic mold, impacting his health. But he was also forced to finally come to terms with his longtime cocaine habit, as well as alcoholism, in 2004. He checked into rehab and became a born again Christian living drug and alcohol-free ever since. He relates many of the details of his life in his autobiography, An Actor and a Gentleman, published in 2010. Today, the 85-year-old actor is a survivor of both prostate cancer and COVID-19, and is still working. He most recently has been seen on the HBO series Watchmen, as well as in quite a number of faith-based films, and in the film 3 months, now streaming on Paramount Plus. He is listed in the cast for an incredible 10 films, currently in various stages of production. In the 1983 fall season, Amy Steele starred in the cast of the NBC military drama for Love and Honor, which ran 13 episodes. She returned to the world of horror in 1986s April Fool's Day and continued to act in guest-starring roles on television. She reportedly auditioned for the role of Maggie O'Connell on the hit 90s series Northern Exposure, but the role went to Janine Turner. After only about 20 television roles throughout the 90s, Amy Steele changed course and became a marriage and family therapist with a practice in the greater LA area. Forever connected to the Friday the 13th franchise, She also makes time for fans at various horror conventions held across the country. Stephen D'Souza, who had written almost exclusively for television up to the time of Matthew Starr, wrote a string of motion pictures in the 1980s you may have heard of, including 48 Hours, Commando, The Running Man, as well as the mega-hit Die Hard. His successful film-writing streak continued into the 90s, and his films have earned over $2 billion at the box office. Robert Earle, following filming of the initial episode order, went on to produce the fantasy series Wizards and Warriors, which aired on rival network CBS as a mid-season replacement in early 1983, running concurrently with Matthew Starr. He also served as a creative consultant for Manimal. Earl left the entertainment industry, however, moving away from California and focusing more on his work as a speaker on the recovery circuit, writing two books about his personal journey. Robert Earl died in 2018 at age 82. Producers Harve Bennett and Bruce Lansbury have also left us in 2015 and 2017, respectively having lived into their mid-80s. Superboy and My Secret Identity were hardly the last time we saw young heroes with incredible powers in popular entertainment. In 2001, Superman's formative teenage years were again explored in Smallville. Clark Kent was played by Tom Welling, with Kristen Creak as Lana Lang on the series which lasted an incredible 10 seasons. With Welling being 34, by series end. While our entertainment has been rife with superheroes in the 21st century, several entertainment properties have also featured teenagers with the power of telekinesis. 2009's Push featured two teenage movers hiding from The Division, the agency that tracks and experiments on people with these abilities. In 2011, the Michael Bay produced I Am Number Four, depicted a teenage alien named John Smith, sent to Earth along with eight others, collectively called The Guard, to escape an invading force on their home planet. Protected by his guardian Henry, he attends high school and finds a girlfriend, but they must flee from assassins that are killing The Guard in numeric order. Instead of continuing to run, John chooses to stay and fight, using his otherworldly abilities which include the powers of telekinesis and telepathy. And if you think that sounds quite similar to the premise of Matthew Starr, you're not alone. Quite a number of reviews of both the film and the Pittacus Lore young adult novel it's based on bring up the similarities. Pittacus Lore is a pseudonym of writers Joby Hughes and James Frey who was also producer of the 2016 series, American Gothic. 2012's Chronicle, a found-footage-type film, followed three Seattle teen boys coming to grips with their newly-found telekinetic powers after coming into contact with a presumably alien artifact. It's all fun and games as their powers increase with use, and without giving away the end, one of them experiences that old Lord Acton standby. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I will note that this film presents telekinetic abilities pretty much exactly how my junior high friends and I conceived it to work, including giving the user the power of flight. And of course, this list wouldn't be complete without mentioning 11 from Netflix's Stranger Things, now enjoying its fourth season. The Powers of Matthew Starr now occupies a place of obscurity likely relative to your age. With the show reaching its 40th anniversary this fall, people over 50 might recall the show, while most people younger than that age likely don't, unless they were a watcher of the Sci-Fi channel in its early days. The Powers of Matthew Star Facebook group, which was of help in the research of this podcast, only has 109 members. Many of the episodes found on YouTube have under 100 views each. Still, it would not shock me to one day hear of an attempt to revive this property. In an age where every media company now evidently has to have a streaming service, everything from Married with Children and Perfect Strangers to Night Court and Quantum Leap are being revived to fill them with content. But a 40-year-old low-rated Friday night show that lasted one season? If you think it's impossible, listen to this. Brian Levant and Fred Fox recently met with Jerry O'Connell and his agents regarding the revival of My Secret Identity. O'Connell was favorable to revisit the character and reportedly the creators are still waiting to hear back from Universal Television. If there have been discussions to bring that back, nothing would surprise me at this point. Something tells me Peter Barton might even make himself available. And perhaps you'd like to see a new incarnation of Matthew Starr. I envision it something like this. Thanks to the sacrifice of his guardian Shep, Matthew Starr as E-Hawk returned to the planet Quadris decades ago and freed his people. Now, with Quadris facing mysterious new threats, Matthew Starr and wife Pam train the next generation of Royals to protect their planet. Now, where's that phone number for Paramount Television? Next time on Forgotten TV. Deep inside the forest is a door into another land. Here is our life and home. We are staying. It was the unexpected G rated 1974 hit film that became a television phenomenon, indelibly inked into worldwide pop culture. Join me as we look at The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. That's next time on Forgotten TV. There's a time we'll call our own in free in harmony and majesty Take me home
1: Take me home
0: Did you know you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and get your own podcast feed? Exclusive content is found there, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental, over 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which include full-length interviews with TV creators, additional documentaries, and my upcoming look at Dr. Albert Burke, a now virtually forgotten Yale academic and prominent television host that pioneered educational television on NBC before PBS even existed. This fascinating show will contain never-before-heard facts about the history of this individual, who had one of the longest-running educational TV shows in syndication before he vanished from the public eye. Won't you join us over on Patreon? The link is found right here in your podcast player. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Joshua Driscoll, with producers Julio Coppa, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Kenny Siegel, Ralph Carasio, Trevor Pearson, and Ron... And, of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, Paramount Television, CBS Television Distribution, VEI Entertainment, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. The Powers of Matthew Starr, is the copyright and property of Paramount Television, Daniel Wilson Productions, Harv Bennett Productions, Bruce Lansbury Productions, Limited, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. All remaining underscore music is used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2022 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected websites. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, forgotten TV media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included, and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast, and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of those audio clips possible. Sierra Moon 131, Fish Man, Soundtrack Search, Alpha Numeric, 80s TV Fan, Retro Newfoundland, Robert C. 2009, Rebecca Decker, Where To This Time, Apotheon SAK, Memory Museum, Tharp Devonport, David Gideon, Dan F. 62465, Screen Blaster 13, Migno 65, Batman Robin Superman WNY underscore VAD 13 In Time OST Blood Moon Productions Sir Robbie Moncton The Rap Sheet Muswell Lee Goldberg HD Film Tributes Yellow Token Antal Endrus. Stranger Things Movie and Video Game TV Spots Special thanks to Tom Green David Karen, Tom Shalazi Jeffrey Scott and Bob Neal Additional research by Jason Hink James Carter of StarringTheComputer.com Joe Stuber of the Comic Book Central Podcast and Ray Caspio and Paul K. Bisson of Satin Tights a Wonder Woman Podcast as well as the gang at William Neff High School alumni Facebook group that shared details Natalie Garcia Dennis Murphy Tom J. Cox, Tanya Clark Sabrina Goodson Tracy Painter and Sherry Morton Also thanks to the members at the Powers of Matthew Starr Facebook group Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources The books Science Fiction Television Series 1959-1989 to by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia A Lit Fuse The Provocative Life of Harlan Ellison by Nat Segaloff Turning on the Light by Bob Earl, Reflections from McNally's Mirror by Glenn Cantrell, Raymond Fernandez, and Tony Ayello, Articles from the following periodicals Starlog, Issues 52 and 64 TV Guide, September 12, 1981 Issue Ebony Magazine, December 1982 Issue Jet Magazine, February 7, 1983 Issue New York Magazine, February 1st, 1982 issue and numerous newspaper articles clipped from newspapers.com as well as content from the following websites Science Fiction Encyclopedia Sci-Fi History Tombs of Cobalt Shock Cinema Magazine The Astounding B-Monster Archive 80s Talk Branded in the 80s TV Party Friday the 13th Films Christianity Today the today show thank you for listening be sure and bookmark forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites i am your writer producer and host chris cooling and this has been forgotten tv